Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to CollinsLastStand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. This is episode 91. Ew. I know. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by Chris Deep Clean and Raygun. Chris, (laughs) you messaged me before we were talking just very briefly over text. You said you were deep cleaning your apartment. Yeah. What what made you uh, was it the coronavirus that made you want to do this? No, I'm just uh, Hispanic. This is kind of what we do at this point. I see. I think I, I think I can't really escape it. Also, right. like uh, our roommate, who has been notoriously negligent uh, and just like going in and out, has flown back to New York some for some reason. <laughs> and uh, so he's going to be staying there for the foreseeable future. And I figured out, oh, well, there's fewer people in the apartment. It's probably a good time to tidy up and clean. Yeah, it's what did he I wonder how much it cost him to fly. They probably paid him. Yeah, I don't know. Airplane. His, his, in fairness, his parents like paid for the flight. They were like, come, come home. I was like, all right, well, it was probably $50 to, to fly cross country at this yeah, point. Probably. I haven't even I haven't even looked at plane ticket prices, but they're probably nothing at all. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, well, I hope everyone is out there saying staying safe. These are crazy and historic times. Actually, when Dagan and I were recording knockback last week, we went into it really deeply. So I'm not going to do that now. But suffice it to say, it's uh, it's a little hairy out there and just keeping everyone in my thoughts. We, we're keeping everyone in our thoughts. Yeah, we know that a lot of uncertainty is striking people both with their health and obviously economically. So we're going to do our best to entertain and inform you in these dark times as we emerge out of them. Uh, so thank you for being here with us. Thank you for choosing our show. 
especially if you support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins Last Stand, where you can get early ad free access to the show, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas and access to our weekly Patreon only episode of Sacred Symbols called Sacred Symbols Plus that goes for 60, 90, maybe even 120 minutes sometimes all about something supplemental. And we're going to talk about that actually in a moment. Yeah. But I did want to say that the lowest end Patreon support, even in these dire times, still very affordable. If you're looking for something to pass the time, a couple more hours or an hour or a couple hours a week of some content, it, it costs like 20 to 25 cents a week, depending on the month. So, you know, jump in and support us if you can enjoy the content and we'll be there for you regardless. Now, Chris, there was some controversy last week. Yeah. About uh, did I actually put this anywhere? I guess I didn't. But we'll talk a little bit about PS5 and the Mark Cerny stuff, which I had always intended on doing in the show. But we had a little bit of controversy because we did an entire episode of Sacred Symbols Plus about Mark Cerny's press conference, his 52 minute press conference. And it was really a victim of timing for us because we record our shows on Monday. I think this was not even announced until after our show. Then we didn't want to like let it go until now. So we did a supplemental podcast. But people were some people were upset. Even people that were behind the paywall were Mm -hmm. upset that it was behind a paywall. And I actually think that this is a fair criticism. And so we didn't do it well, I, I, I mean, I make moves to, for my business, but we really didn't do it for that reason. We just didn't want to oh, let yeah, it go yeah. for, for so long. We just wanted to be timely about it. And we we saw the announcement come up and it was like, oh, that would be like just perfect timing for a for an episode. Definitely, because Chris and I were originally going to do one about Xbox, actually, that week. And this just seemed like a better idea. But I do hear you because even though we had intended on talking about it here and we're going to talk about it here as well. We we never intended on going 90 minutes or 80 minutes or however long we were on this show. So that is a separate show. But what I'm going to do is by the time that this episode goes live for everyone on public feeds, I'm going to make that episode of Sacred Symbols Plus free right. for like the for a few days. So you guys can go listen to it, download it, whatever. If you don't want to pay behind the paywall, that way you can get that episode and you don't feel too upset with us. It's a message that's received uh, loud and clear, and uh, we're, we apologize for the miscommunication because I, I do have to take some responsibility for that. Although I think that people also have to take a little bit of responsibility for their own reactions as well, because it's really not the end of the world. We were going to talk about it and are going to talk about it here. But I understand. I want to support you guys, and especially at times like this. So yeah, we'll make that episode free for a few days so you can go get it when this episode goes live for everyone. And uh, that brought up, Chris, something else that we should talk about, which is and this is something that people have been bringing up and I think brought it up, especially now with the PS5 news and everything. It kind of begs the question, and I think this is a reasonable conversation and I want to know what you think about it. But Mm -hmm. should we just move the show's dates so that it's recorded and posted on different days to allow us to absorb more more of the week's news and all of this. This, I think, is an open question, and I'm totally open to this possibility, but I want to know what you think about it. Yeah, I mean, it's tricky because sometimes we sometimes the recording date that we have works like immensely in our favor. Right. Because sometimes we've had news break even just minutes before we go live or uh, before we have 
you know, everything set up to record. And it's like really kind of serendipitous timing. So I wonder like what changing the dates will do, if not just make us earlier for news that we wouldn't have been earlier for or later to news that we wouldn't have been. You know what I mean? Yeah. News doesn't have like a schedule, really. It just sort of happens. It's true. I'm kind of I I think that as well in the sense that we can't really absorb everything that happens based on the schedule because things just happen randomly. But it is worth noting that we record after a weekend when nothing happens and then we record on Monday and the news has barely even begun as opposed to if we recorded, say, Wednesday or Thursday. Right. Not only would this allow us to absorb that that week's news and get it out quicker in a more robust fashion, but also allow us to talk about the games we were playing that week that have come out that week and all of the rest. So I don't know. I'm amenable to this, but I want to see what the audience thinks and what we should do because we've made Tuesdays great. I don't know if we have the power to make Thursdays or Fridays great. I'm pretty (laughs) sure we can. We can make Fridays great. Yeah, I think we can make Fridays great. We already make Fridays great with Sacred Symbols Plus. So the thought I had was like, do we record on Thursdays post for patrons on Fridays? The show goes live for everyone Mondays. And then on Monday, we record plus to go live Tuesdays, if that makes any sense. So it's kind of like an inverse schedule. Yeah. And this is a possibility. I don't really know. But if we hear from you and we decide to do this in the interim you might notice a little bit more of a gap between this episode 91 and episode 92 as we kind of acclimate to that schedule. But I've made no decisions yet. Right. I just wanted to throw it out there that I think I think this is a reasonable complaint. I don't know if it's a complaint that just a loud small minority have or if lots of people feel this way. But I wanted to talk about it and at least throw it out there and see what people think, because we want this show to serve everyone best. So if the PS5 announcement happened Wednesday and this show won't actually go live for everyone until nine days later. Yeah. And I understand why that is like why that kind of sucks. And I don't want to put people off from our show, especially at a time like this when people are going to be relying on us more than ever for entertainment. So just throwing it out there. Let us yeah. know what you think. We're listening. We're listening. And uh, Chris, the big news, of course, this week is that Twin Breaker, our video game, is out. By the time you hear this episode, by the time this episode goes live, it'll be out. I think we're recording this and it's probably already out in New Zealand and Australia. And then so it's kind of rolling across the world. It'll be out in the Americas. And then by the 25th, it'll be out in Europe and other places. So uh, go support us, please. Twin Breaker, a Sacred Symbols adventure. Reviews are out there if you want to go look at them. We've gotten some really nice reviews some people really enjoy the game a lot of i think almost everyone really enjoyed it i think i only saw or read one review of a person that wasn't crazy about it and that's fine it's interesting to it's interesting to read and listen to people's opinions about something that you've just been working on yeah and hasn't really been in the wild so that's a new experience for me Uh, but we're really proud of the game i really do think it's a great game and it's really entertaining and i think it's perfect for a time like now just to occupy you and take your mind off things for a little while so Go look it up. Twin Breaker, a Sacred Symbols adventure. It's on PS4 and Vita. Cross by. It's $9.99 in the United States or your local equivalent. And we really would love to hear what you think of it. Yeah. So go out there, get it, get the, uh, the two platinum trophies. Stream it, make videos, do whatever you want. Yeah, man. Have it's, fun with it. It's uh, We're in the drop now. <laughs> I know we're in the drop. Isn't that crazy? We are there. 
It is. It's interesting. And uh, Chris, we got a message from Brandon Hardman on Twitter. He says, is everything going to be OK? That was all he said. Is everything going to be OK? What do you think? Do you think everything's going to be OK with everything that's going on right now? I think everything will be OK for the people who are smart enough to understand what to do in a time like this. Hmm. <laughs> there are people who are like going on the like going on, like taking walks on the beaches in Florida and doing like spring break parties like a like a bunch of like a, like a bunch of imbeciles. And uh, they're probably not going to be all that great. But uh, just, you know, stay safe, take precautions. Lock yourself in. Yeah, th- this is a frustrating moment because the best way to handle this is for everyone to be as disciplined as possible. Yeah. And there's just no discipline to be had with some people. And that's that's fine. You know, like, for instance, I've got to I have to go to the store today to get some medicine. So that will be the first time I've really gone out anywhere in like a couple of weeks. And that's, I think, an acceptable thing to do. But if you're needing to take care of yourself and the and the essentials of life or you have a, a job where you're still working yeah, yeah. in person, then these are the things you have to do. But really try to limit your exposure. Otherwise, yeah. it's, it's one thing to have something that you absolutely have to do for like monetary reasons or health reasons or just like a necessity reason. But if you're going out like, ah, oh, you know, I want to I want to go to the beach because there's no traffic. It's like, ah. Uh, don't be don't be an idiot. All right. Yeah, exactly. Because you're you're potentially going to get infected and get sick or infect yourself, be fine and infect someone else. So this is really a this is an interesting moment for America, especially because we're so we have this rugged individualism here in the US where we just hate the government and we hate authority and we do whatever we want and no one can tell us what to do and shit like that. And it's just one of those moments where you're social contract with everyone is to override those perceived limitations on yourself just for a little while and just do what's right by society. So to Brandon's question, I think everything's going to be just fine. I think we just have to ride this out. I mean, right now it's really not a good scene out there. I mean, the market is bombing. People are losing their jobs. I'm sure plenty of people that listen to this show have been laid off or furloughed. And yeah, it's a really terrible thing. And I'm just hoping I'm really hoping that when we look back at this, we look at it and say, like, wow, that was really overblown. What an overreaction that was, because that would be better than the opposite, which is, oh, wow, like that. We fucking got slaughtered because we didn't listen and we didn't take this seriously enough. But it seems like everyone understands the gravity of the situation and we just want everyone to be safe and sound. This is a good time. To just get your mind off of things, mm-hmm. listen to us, listen to other podcasts and shows, YouTube shows, binge your shows, play video games, do all of that. So just stay safe out there. But yes, we're going to be fine. This isn't the apocalypse. It's fun to read something like Book of Revelation right now and think that we're in you know, the rapture or something <laughs> like that. But, but we're not. And we've fa- glo- the global society has faced much worse than this before. We've had world wars and really serious pandemics that... We weren't prepared for and didn't understand. Remember that like a third of Europe was wiped out about 500 years ago yeah, uh, because of a, a contagion that they definitely didn't understand. So just be safe, have confidence that we're all going to restore the order soon and just try to keep your mind off of it in the meantime. Stay aware of things. But I mean, like, I think it's a good idea to stay off of social media. I think it's a good idea to. Try not to read too much. Just listen to the CDC or your local authority. And otherwise, 
do what I do and just lay in bed all day. We're going to put this episode out and there's going to be like a swarm of locusts <laughs> or it's like going to be raining blood. It's going to be some crazy shit. Then it really would be like the Book of Revelation. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Chris, before we get into what we're playing, Long John Silvers wrote into us again. I don't know if this is this this person speaks for the entire corporation. I hope so. Of Long John Silvers, but says, hello, wild Alaskan cold caught Colin and 499 grill taco combo, Chris. <laughs> wow. It's pretty good. Colin, you have mentioned repeatedly that you don't watch anime and that anime is for dorks. However, you claimed as recently as last week that Castlevania on Netflix is a great show. Castlevania is an anime series and you are therefore a dork. I accept that correction. I feel I feel that that's a fair correction. Yeah. And I just wanted to read that aloud. I mean, you're I'm not nearly as dorky as a lot of you out there are. Let's be honest. But I'm going to accept that correction and that insertion that I or that assertion that I am an anime dork just for Castlevania. I still have not watched the new season yet. It's really good. I'm sure it is. I got to get there. Lots of things on the list. I'm not you know, there's so much to watch now that I'm not in any rush. But then what happens is that I become in such not a rush that I just never get to it. This is what happened with Stranger Things, like the last two seasons. And the I never watched the last season of The Expanse. I never watched the last season of Man in the High Castle because I'm just like, oh, I'll get there. I'm excited. You know, I'll watch it later. And <laughs> I and can't do and that. It never happens. I can't do that. I feel like I just I feel like I forget everything that happens. And then I have to re acclimate myself with the show and watch it all over again just to catch up with the new season. Well, that's my fear now as well with some of this stuff. So. Yeah, I reap what I sow, I guess. But Chris, let's get into what we're playing. Uh, You are playing Doom Eternal. I'm excited to hear what you think about it. And so talk to me. Yeah, man, I am loving it. I would be shocked to see another FPS come out in the next couple of years that is as good as this. I I am absolutely enamored with it. And I think it's, it's really cool because it's like when I first started playing... Like when I first started the, the the first mission, the introductory sequence, I was kind of worried because I got really good with Doom 2016. I got like really confident with the combat loop in Doom 2016. And I was like, oh, this is definitely going to carry over. And it kind of does, but it's also like, it's significantly different. It's a far more challenging game. It's a lot more punishing, but not in like a, a frustrating way. You really get the sense that they really double down on, you know, making the AI really formidable and designing enemies that really complement each other and designing enemies that kind of necessitate different strategies and different weapon uses and it's a lot more about resource management you have a chainsaw that gives you ammo you have glory kills that give you health you have a flamethrower that gives you armor and it's just kind of about you know chaining all these different tools together into some elegant combat dance that's just backed by this incredible metal soundtrack and this incredible presentation you can really feel the work that was put into it because of the delay. It's a very polished experience. It's a very gorgeous experience. And uh, there's, there are like some gripes that I have with it. There's like the, the main gripe is that there's like an enemy. There's a, there's a particular demon in Doom Eternal that is kind of a pain in the ass. Uh, and if anybody's played it, they know that it's the Marauder. It's, he's like this. He's, he's kind of tedious to fight. He stops the whole fight. And he kind of demands a lot of your focus. But aside from that one nitpick, which, by the way, I've gotten way better at fighting those specific enemy types. It is just such a good, well-crafted, competently designed video game. I think from front to back, I absolutely adored my time with uh, Doom Eternal. I wanted to ask you, Chris, about 
the RPG mechanics and like the leveling. Mm-hmm. This has been something a lot of people have been feeling like maybe it's too much. What do you think of that? It definitely gives you a lot to work with, and it it can be kind of overwhelming. The way they do tutorials isn't great. They just sort of show you like they're very modern tutorials. It's very much like, oh, here's how you do this. Here's how you do that. And it, it doesn't really leave a lot of exploration until later on when you're fighting new enemies and, you know, exactly what to equip and like how to do it. But I, I, I don't know if it's too much to manage. I think it's a it's just enough. It's enough to make you feel like you have a lot of tools at your disposal. It's a lot. It's enough to make you feel like you can customize your experience to exactly the way that you want to play. But it's also, you know, it is it is bordering on that territory where there are some things that I forgot that I had that I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot. I I totally forgot I had this. But I feel like that's more of a problem earlier in the game when you're just sort of getting used to the new things that you're being introduced to. And because the game does a really good job of kind of forcing you to play it in a fun way, which is really cool. Like it, it makes you move around and it makes you. It makes you play in the way that you see pro people play. Like if you watch somebody play this game and they're not that great at it, it's still going to look cool. And a lot of that really does have to do with how customizable the experience is, like all the different weapon uh, attachments and all the different runes and all the different like passive abilities that you can unlock. It's it's really it's really cool. I don't think it's I don't think it's too much. I know a lot of people had a problem with the platforming uh but i'm a weird person and for some reason i really really dug it i'm also the person who liked the combat in bioshock infinite which apparently nobody did so maybe that's just me i like the worst part of every game apparently (laughs) no i i it's it's just i i'm curious because i have not downloaded and played doom yet we'll do a spoiler cast on it in a couple weeks so i'll be prepared for that but yeah it was an interesting thing to read about how the upgrade mechanics almost seemed too deep for some people mm-hmm. not that they couldn't understand them but that it didn't really the game didn't really demand those mechanics it seems to be a, at a dissonance with the core gameplay which is kinetic and really grueling but mm-hmm. it does seem to its credit that it makes you use a lot of different weapons and a lot of different styles in order to maintain uh, your health and your armor and all that so it, it does sound awesome I'm really looking forward to jumping into it further. I just got distracted by some other stuff. I was oh, going to yeah, play it when sure. it came out. Jeremy Miller wrote in to us on Patreon says, does Chris have any thoughts on the platforming of Doom Eternal? I've almost beaten it. And he says, and oh, New Zealand squad who gets the game eight hours before the US and really can't stand the platforming and thinks it really dis- and think it really distracts from amazing kinetic gameplay. I guess it's true. Once you go dying light, you can't go back. What do you think about the platforming in the game? Yeah, I, I, I get it. I get the complaints with it because it's not um, it's not the same kind of fast and kinetic. But I do th- I do think the platform is still pretty, pretty swift. Like you can the platforming in this game, like really makes me want to watch a speed run because I bet it's going to look insane. Um, there are some parts about it that are a little janky, like def- climbing up walls from a from a animation standpoint looks a little bit clunky and a little weird. So I totally get that. But I don't know. I, I didn't I didn't have a problem with it. I really I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a good way to break up the pace between these intense firefights because these in every fight in this game is like insane. Like every fight is difficult because the AI is just so much more competent than it was in the previous entry that I found the platforming to be like a nice 
you know, far more manageable, easily digestible challenge that was also swift and and fast and kinetic in its own kind of way. So first person platforming is tough. Yeah, I, I think in for the most part, it really doesn't even belong in games. And I think that he brought up Dying Light, which was really a good idea because Dying Light was one of those really beautiful examples of how it's done. And it's going to be hard to replicate that too well. That's why I think Dying Light was so special, because I couldn't believe how solid that game felt for being a first person game. Like it just felt awesome. I can't wait to play the sequel for that very reason, because it was so unusual in that regard. But, you know, I I would imagine the platforming, as you're saying, and Doom Eternal is just as a minor part of it. And I remember playing the original Doom, like the 2016 Doom and thinking kind of the same thing when you're trying to jump up to areas and get these like far off armor or health upgrades or collectibles and you're trying to balance and stuff that it was a little it's not janky it's just the perspective itself just doesn't lend to to doing it it's not a third person game so yeah no it's yeah yeah. it's definitely i think objectively speaking it's probably the weakest part of the game but i still really enjoyed it just because it it really is arcadey it doesn't feel like you know it's all that concerned with showing you like really realistic animations of of doom guy just climbing or doing really slow kind of anatomically correct things it's all in absurd and insane and uh it's definitely the least polished aspect of the game but i still think it's like pretty i think it's a pretty good way to break up the pace still all right well i've been playing batman arkham asylum which i did for a knockback so you guys can go listen to that it was good to play through it again i got pretty much to the end and then got distracted by Riddler trophies, but I'd beaten the game back in the day. So I get it. It was a uh, cool to experience it again. It's a really special and interesting game. Although I think that its flaws have been exposed in the last 11 years. So you guys can go listen to that if you'd like. And then uh, I booted up and I actually couldn't, I have it on disc, so I don't even know where it is. So I just bought Neo again, uh, the <laughs> original. And uh, so I started playing it a couple nights ago and I started I played it back in February of 2017, like right before it came out. And as I've said on the show and I said back then, I just I got to the boat boss, like the first real boss in the game. And I, I just couldn't beat. I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm supposed to do here. So it was it really just put me off from playing it anymore. And I'm like, yeah, fuck it. And I moved on. And uh, so I was like, you know, this game is really interesting. I do like the way it feels. I do like Team Ninja. So I will give it another go, especially because the sequel just came out and I am interested in trying that out. I feel like I should play the original first. So I've been playing it. And first of all, I for, I totally forgot about the whole opening sequence in like the Tower of London. I forgot that that even happened in the game. Like the the in my mind's eye, I was like, oh, it starts in that first stage in Japan, like in that island, like that village. And it doesn't it doesn't start that way at all. So that was like kind of a nice surprise. I was like, oh, yeah, you're going to work your way through this thing and break out of prison basically and then you get to that stage that village stage and I was working my way through it it's cool to just explore and walk around I really love Neo for the amount of customization like action customization and combat customization is in the game like the different types of weapons and stances it's really I I gotta say I think it's a much better game than what from software does with Dark Souls now I've only played Demon Souls Dark Souls and Bloodborne and I actually really like Bloodborne but I think this game's better than that. And maybe it's just because I like a little bit more of action and a little bit more fluidity in my games. And that game doesn't really lend to that. And I, I don't mean that as a disparagement towards Bloodborne. It's just 
a much more deliberate game. But I've been playing it and I've been really enjoying it. But then I got to the boat boss and I got beat like 10 times. I'm like, oh, this is so fucking annoying. You know, I can't believe that this boss is just so hard. And then finally, I just stuck with it. And finally, I just beat him without much difficulty. I just kind of was really patient and just slowly whittled him down and stayed away from him and all that. And I don't even think I got hit during the fight. And then uh, I moved on. So then I did like the uh, another side mission. And now I'm waiting to play it further. But I have to say from a balance perspective, you know, I thought I, I tweeted out and I was even reading around. I'm like, is this really that hard or <laughs> was am it? I just becoming slow? And people a lot of people were like, it really is that hard. And if you read online, this boss fight put a lot of people off from playing the game at all. And I, I have to say, like, you don't need a boss fight that tough in the beginning. It's not that hard once you wrap your mind around it, but you want to kind of like lull your audience into a sense of security and at least like get them into the game and get them immersed and invested in the game. And it, it reminds me a little bit of Bloodborne where you fight that first boss on the bridge. I beat that boss the first time I fought him and I'm not very good at Bloodborne, but it made me feel like, oh, all right, well, I'm I'm in good shape here and I can play. And I, like I obviously learned how bad I was at Bloodborne later, but at least it got me invested in the experience in the beginning. Like this seems like a boss that is just way out of whack in terms of balance yeah. from where it should be. And I don't really understand why it's where it is in the game. And it's not even that it's that difficult. It's that you're fighting it like in a ship's hold and it's just, just nowhere to go. It's just very peculiar. I don't know what the point of that was. And I was reading that some people think that that's the hardest boss in the entire game or the second hardest boss in the entire game. And that there really is a balance problem there. So that's too bad. But I've heard such good things about Neo 2 that I just couldn't avoid going back into Neo. And I'm really glad that I did because it's a lot of fun. It's charming. And I, I do love the East meets West story and how it kind of ties in like Elizabethan England with this feudal Japan situation. It's neat. I dig it. So uh, go play it. It's 20 bucks right now if you want to download it, which is a pretty good price, I think, for the game. You could probably get it cheaper if you want to go get a retail version or get it used, obviously. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. All right, Chris, let's get into the news. There's quite a bit to get through. Yeah. And we'll begin with number one, which was where everyone's consternation about Sacred Symbols Plus began. Said last week, Sony's Mark Cerny gave a 52 minute long presentation all about PlayStation 5. And though it was really aimed at the development community, it was originally slated to occur at GDC in San Francisco, which was canceled due to the coronavirus. There was some interesting information within, including confirmation about the machine's core power and more. 
PS5 will run on an AMD Ryzen Zen 2 CPU with eight cores and 16 threads and variable frequency reaching 3.5 gigahertz. The GPU is an AMD Radeon RDNA 2 base graphics engine with ray tracing and variable frequency reaching 2.3 gigahertz or 2.23 gigahertz or 10.3 teraflops. You'll note that that is fewer teraflops than what Xbox One has. The system memory is 16 gigs with 446 gigabytes per second of bandwidth, and its SSD is 825 gigabytes in size, which caused some problems for people. That is a small hard drive. It'll support Ultra HD Blu-ray discs, 4K and 8K TVs, and include so-called Tempest 3D audio. The major controversy to come out of the presentation wasn't the seemingly underpowered machine, however, but the way Cerny spoke about backwards compatibility, a controversy so substantial in the days afterwards that Sony was forced to release a clarification to his comments, softening the blow. Cerny originally stated that most of the 100 most played PS4 games would be available in backwards compatibility at PS5's launch, indicating a beleaguered backwards compatibility process that seemed to be light years behind Xbox Series X's. However, that may, may not be the case. Sony's clarification noted in part, quote, we believe that the overwhelming majority of the 4,000 plus PS4 titles will be playable on PS5. We're expecting backwards compatible titles will run at a boosted frequency on PS5 so that they can benefit from higher or more stable frame rates and potentially higher resolutions. We're currently evaluating on a title by title basis to spot any issues that need adjustment from the original software developers, Ellipsis. We have already tested hundreds of titles and are preparing to test thousands more as we move towards launch and quote. So for our full 80 minute conversation about this, you can go to the Sacred Symbols Plus episode, as I noted earlier, but we do have some things to get into here. First of all, before I even get into any of this, do you have any like evolved thoughts? I mean, we kind of talked about this pretty quick upon it happening. So, I mean, has anything settled in your mind that is different than what we had already discussed? How are you feeling? I'm even more confused, honestly. I, I think this is even more baffling than it was initially, because now... Why would they? Either Mike Cerny was lying, or they're lying now. You know what I mean? Like, what? What is so? One hundred. It's. It was originally the one hundred most plays, played PS4 games would be available at backwards compatibility, and just a couple days later, suddenly it's the overwhelming majority. Like, what were they talking about? I feel like maybe they were talking about something else, almost. Like maybe they were talking about oh. The 100 games that we were talking about have PS5 enhancements. We weren't talking about backwards compatibility. We were talking about forwards compatibility with with PS5's features or something. That's what it almost feels like. It feels like there's a complete and utter miscommunication in either Cerny's presentation or their clarification. Yeah, I'm a little confused about the whole marketing and PR message behind this thing at all. I feel like there's a lot of fanboyism out there. In defense of all consoles, of course, but especially with this going on now with PS5, there's just a lot of people out there that are defending what seems to be a pretty indefensible first salvo of information, apart from the Wired article and all of that, where I don't understand why anyone would want to make excuses for what is happening and why it happened this way. Now, it's cool that they came in and clarified things, but it doesn't really bolster my confidence in the machine or the machine behind the machine when they don't even know how to talk about it. And it just doesn't seem to be a problem that Microsoft is experiencing right now. And I I don't know how anyone can pay attention to both of these rollouts and feel like there's no discrepancy between the two. Sony doesn't need people to defend them. Sony needs people to hold them to account. And that's what I'm really trying to do with my criticism of this, because I think Mark Cerny's great. I think he's rhythmic and hypnotic. He's obviously incredibly intelligent, smartest guy in the room. 
And I think that's all great. And I think it's important to have him talk about the console. I think it does a lot of good. He talked a lot about the PS4 and it did it a lot of good. But there needs to be more when the expectations are so high and everything's so vague and leaving things the way they did and then having to basically update people with a PlayStation blog updated post. It's not even like a new post. So no one's going to see it. Only the most hardcore people are going to see it. You know, something like 15 million people watched that presentation already. And I'm sure a very small minority of them are ever going to know much more than what they saw. And most of them probably tuned out about 10 minutes in because it was really boring Mm. and not it's not that there's no place for boring stuff. It's just that like a GDC presentation is not your is not your forte when talking to a a wider audience that is hungry. And so it's a problem and I'm glad that they clarified it, but it does. So, as you said, more confusion in the whole process and what they're trying to do here. Yeah, it's it's a it's a really confusing rollout. I I mean, I said it in the PlayStation Plus episode, but it, it really does feel like this is the kind of talk you want to have posted after you've revealed your machine and after you've done a, a far more consumer friendly unveiling of information like this is not the thing that you should lead with. I agree. And Jordan Goodeye wrote into us on Patreon and said, good afternoon, fellow comrades and countrymen. With the recent PS5 reveal, the discussion of backwards compatibility seemed problematic. Am I just reading too much into it or is Sony really not going to make PS5 completely backwards compatible with PS4? I'm not technically savvy enough to know if the comment on the system's power breaking older games is realistic or market speak. Thanks again and stay safe and healthy. I don't know if it's realistic or market speak or maybe even a little bit of both. But I do know that I read into this properly a long time ago that there was not going to be full and seamless backwards compatibility. And people are saying, and I think rightfully so, that, well, Microsoft is doing a similar thing where they do have to go in and test the games and this and that and the other thing. But I'm like, that's fine. But just say what you mean. I don't need to have you dodging and bobbing and weaving. There's an expectation about what we're going to be able to do on this console. And it's reasonable. And you set that expectation yourself by having x86 architecture and talking so much about accessibility and all of this. So that's where I think the problem stems from, Chris. It's not so much about the work that Sony needs to put in or that it's not as easy as it seems. It's just that they don't know how to talk. And I don't get it. Yeah, they seem to be really fumbling with the messaging about this machine, which is like a real shame considering this is of all years to launch a console. Like if it even comes out this year, this is probably the worst year to fumble with your messaging. You know what I mean? Like this is not ideal timing (laughs) for any of these, you know, clarifications and lackluster conferences and, you know, just sort of random gdc streams especially the fact that he like didn't he have like were those real people in front of him the silhouettes or were they were they actually cardboard (laughs) no they were real i mean they were moving but i think it was i'm sure if you panned back a little bit more you would find out that there was literally it was probably just like his staff yeah yeah and they were like just sit here to make it seem like it's an exciting and not weird thing we're doing here for no explicable reason yeah it's just it's even it makes it even weirder to me I don't know. They, they they really this is this in particular is just like a really bad rollout. And I think uh, they really need to reevaluate how they're doing this. I agree. I, I don't see how anyone can look at this and be like, this was this was the right move. I, I just don't understand the Sony Defense Force stuff at all. And I think that by not being the Sony Defense Force in previous generations, we ended up getting better and better products. They improved the PS3 and made it great. They rolled out a PS4 really amply 
and it's an awesome console. I think the PS4 is my favorite Sony console and I, I really love it. So I, I want them to have challenging moments with the PS5 like they're having now, but they need to respond properly and the audience doesn't need to be making excuses for them because I don't think that there are any excuses to be made. They are capitalized and liquid. They have sold extremely well. They have a captive audience and it's up to them to take advantage of those things to the best of their ability. And if they don't, then I don't blame uh, people migrating away. Although I think we'll talk about that a little bit later. It's not to say that none of the information we learned was important. It's just to say that we could have gotten that information in 15 minutes instead of 52. And it could have been part of a grander rollout of games and services just like they did with PS4. That's how we learned about some of the stuff in PS4 to begin with. Yeah. And as I said on the Sacred Symbols Plus episode, which people will have already heard or will hear, depending on if you want to check it out. The reality is, is that this seems redundant because the people that are working on games already know this stuff. They've had the console for a while. Some yeah. people have some teams and publishers have had the console for two years. It's not like this is new information. I understand that you need to aim this at smaller indies, but I think that they also kind of contradicted themselves with this because he was saying like, oh, all of the new features in the PS5 don't even really need to be used. You can just make a game and put it out or whatever. It's like, all right, so you just nothing about this makes any sense. Then what, what what's happening? This isn't need to know information. It seemed like a very inside baseball thing to send out to the public. And it's it's especially it's especially weird because their messaging lately hasn't been great, but they've also kind of hinted at the fact that, you know, they were they were talking about some of the mistakes they made with PS3. They were talking about, you know, they, they've been pretty transparent about the thing that everybody is aware of, which is the generational flip like they know that people will sometimes flip to the next console or the the competitor console every other generation and they seem to be aware of that and they seem to be like oh we don't want to make the same mistakes like i think i i've i recall them saying something almost verbatim like that and yet they they've gone on and with this very strange just just peculiar rollout and it's it's uh it's just weird because they seem self-aware, but like not in the way that they need to be. The idea of. So let me back up. Sony used to be a really fractious company in, on the PlayStation side with like a lot of it's like a multi-front civil war with the Americas and Europe and all the different European territories in Japan and Southeast Asia and, and Australia. And all the PR teams wanted different things and they were competitive. And it was this really strange setup. And as people will recall, like a couple of years ago, not even the United States PR team basically won and consolidated power. And so what that should have ended with is something much more workable and coherent for all of the incoherence behind the scenes at Sony for many years. The PS4 rollout was incredibly coherent, and that was during the previous turbulent behind the scenes civil war. So you would think that just based on the reality of their structure that they would just be in a better place to talk about the console in a more coherent way. Everyone's on board and all this kind of stuff. It just doesn't seem that they know what's happening. And again, I just think if you have to, if you have to explain something away, if what do they say? If you're explaining, you're losing something like that. Yeah. That they had to release a blog post update because of what they were saying and doing. Uh, that's a that's a Sony problem. That's not a Colin or a Sacred Symbols problem. And I I feel like people just need to keep their their foot on the gas in terms of 
expectations with Sony. We should expect much more. Yeah. And they have a really staunch competitor that's doing a lot of great things. It reminds me a lot of uh, the original messaging for the Xbox One and how many uh, clarifications they had to put out about like always online DRM and, you know, like all sorts of problems that the original Xbox One launch was facing. And the second that you saw all those like corrections, you knew that it was like you knew that they were in like a bad way. Definitely. So we're going to have to see how it all ends up playing out. Mm -hmm. But uh, we have another letter here uh, from Kevin Hartanto. It says, hi, Colin and Chris. With the seemingly curious update to the backwards compatibility of PS4 games to PS5, just underlines to me the poor marketing that Sony has and that they have been second, at least in terms of marketing to Microsoft. What seems to be the problem? Is it going to be down to the games to be their saving grace? Well, of course, Chris, I think that it is going to come down to games ultimately, and this all might not matter. I think I'm confident in saying Sony's going to have better games. I don't know that Microsoft is going to have Microsoft certainly doesn't have a better suite of studios. And mm-hmm. I don't think that they're going to even be ready to go with all the studios that they just recently purchased. So do you think that this might not end up mattering that like once we get a year into the generation, whenever it begins and we have a smattering of first party games that people are going to just be satisfied and satiated anyway. I think first impressions always matter. I do think it will come down to the games because the games is obviously the lifeblood of your machine. Um, If you don't have a reason to own your machine, you're probably not going to own that machine. But at the same time, you want the messaging to be as favorable as possible before people have a chance to get their hands on that machine. Because if their messaging is anything even close to the way the Xbox One's messaging was closer to that system's launch then it's it doesn't matter like what games you have because you're going to start off way behind like you're you're definitely going to please the people who've already supported you and that's that's really good that's a great thing to do but you know you got to get out there and you got to make the messaging clear you got to you got to say something that makes sense to everybody and you have to like not let people run with these rumors and the way you the way that you don't let people run away with rumors is that you word things very clearly and just be very upfront like if if they if they had said, you know, oh hey, you know, no backwards compatibility, that would be pretty bad. But at the very least, it would be like direct. The fact that they're very very kind of wishy washy with the way that they're wording things lately is is the most concerning thing to me about their messaging, because it seems to um, evoke a very strong lack of, I don't want to say confidence, but lack of assuredness of what they're making. Like you, you, you shouldn't say like, oh, 100 plus PS4 games will be backwards compatible on PS5 if, if that's not exactly what you mean. Yeah. And it was even it was most of them, yeah. as people might recall, as he didn't. So they couldn't even they couldn't even confirm that it would run all of them. And I totally understand that they have to go back in and see and massage and all that. That seems to make sense. But that's not the way that they made it sound originally. And so that's also a relevant component to whatever's happening here. Well, you also said, like you said, uh, that Microsoft is doing a similar thing and and notice that Microsoft isn't getting any flack for that. And it's not because Microsoft has more bias than Sony does. It's definitely not true. I think what it comes down to is the fact that Microsoft has more or less delivered pretty well on their promises with backwards compatibility so people aren't worried. It's the fact that Sony has been so bad with it in the past that has people worried. It's the track record that matters, I think, as far as this goes. 
And Simmerbeer Singh Sani wrote into us and said, hi, CNC. Being a med student, our rotations cannot be conducted online, so they've been postponed until further notice. Although we have been volunteering at the hospitals, but this delay has consequences stressing me the fuck out. I'm sorry to hear that. Well, thank you for working hard. You'll get through it. We need people like you. Thank you for making the week somewhat bearable. Sony updated that PlayStation 5 will support an overwhelming majority of the 4,000 plus existing PS4 titles with older titles possibly performing at better FPS and resolution. With this putting some minds at ease, do you think that the remastered format of games is coming to an end? What happens to the remakes and reimaginings of older titles such as Resident Evil 2? Will they end up as collateral damage? Also, we touch our face like 3,000 times a day, so keep washing those filthy hands. Uh, thank you, Simmerbeer. Stay safe out there. This is an interesting question, Chris. We've talked a little bit about this in the past. The remaster and, and reimagining of games, I don't I think they're two different things, but I, I do wonder like what is going to happen with this whole idea of re-releasing games. And I think that the consumer friendly nature of backwards compatibility ensures us that we don't really need backwards compatible games. Uh, uh, or I'm sorry, we don't need the remastered games because I think about Bioshock games, for instance, they did release the Bioshock collection on Xbox one, but they didn't really need to because as I, as far as I understand, you can play all three of those games on Xbox One with backwards compatibility. Yeah. So they gave people like an option. And I guess if you wanted the achievements or whatever on there, you can go get them again. But that's like the real ideal option. And we didn't really have something like that with the Uncharted games per se. And so they released the Uncharted collection when they did. It was in 2015 or 2016. And the I think it was 2015. And so we had to buy it again. And I, I wonder what you think about what Simmerbeer is talking about here in terms of kind of hindering these games moving forward. Yeah, I mean, you're probably not going to see any re-releases. You're probably not going to see like The Last of Us 2 remastered or Shadow of the Colossus, you know, remastered. What you're probably going to see, you will see remakes still, because I think a lot of remakes that are coming out now are remakes of games that came out like 20 years ago on like the PlayStation 1 or the PlayStation 2, uh, which, while you can probably play those with backwards compatibility, I know some PS2 titles are available natively on PS4, like a handful, um, and I know a lot of those games aren't necessarily yearning for a remake or a remaster of any kind, but I, I, do, I do think that, for the most part, people are willing to pay for the same game again as long as it's a new take on that same game. Like, I'm really excited about... The Destroy All Humans remake. I don't know when it's coming out, but I do know that it is essentially just the first game again, but they've made some tweaks to the controls. They've added some abilities. They've added some cut content that was cut from the original uh, pandemic game. And I think, you know, stuff like that, I think you'll continue to see because they're far enough removed from the modern play space that it makes sense to maybe revisit those games with like a fresh pair of eyes. Like I have no doubt in my mind that Resident Evil 2 remake and the original Resident Evil 2 are both very very different games even though they use kind of the same basic framework and you could justify having both of those games on the same marketplace and I don't think they, they'll really compete with each other um, because they're just so vastly different but yeah you're not going to get you know a, a, a vague up res of a game that came out a year ago like I think that's I think those days are dead in the water, and and quite frankly, I'm really glad that they are because I I I always considered those really not the best. They always really struck me as kind of inherently opportunistic, 
yeah, I I'm in agreement with you here. I do think that Simabir is talking about two different things in a sense because yeah. Resident Evil Two Remake is a is a ground uh, is a built ground for, uh, built from the ground remake of a yeah, game. Yeah, exactly. Those things are going to happen, mm-hmm. but the Bioshock thing is different. So just just as that using that as an example, so I think that you'll see plenty of one and and not the other, and I think that this is ideal for the consumer, and this is why backwards compatibility is so important and this is why backwards compatibility needs to go as far back as possible and i think uh, the obvious solution now is going to be playstation now which i know is really working for a lot of people for ps3 but it's just a really consumer friendly thing so this is one of the benefits i think of this new era is that we don't have to buy these games ever again and there's going to be no excuse for publishers to re-release them and that might be a bummer for some people because some people like to buy these games again. They like to support the publishers and the developers. They like to get the new trophies, whatever, maybe some new perks. But it just allows these publishers to release something in perpetuity and forget about it and then move on with their lives, which is nice. So I'm excited about this. And I think that's why the the mismessaging is uh, so unfortunate. Finally, Eric wrote into us and said, hey, CNC, uh, I was wondering, do you think Mark Cerny is turtly enough for the Turtle Club? <laughs> I mean, he looks just like Dana Carvey. It's honestly kind of terrifying. On a more serious note, do you think them choosing to reveal hardware specs without any physical reveal of the machine was a mistake? So, uh, first of all, excellent reference, Eric. Thank you. He what does look like Dana Carvey. Is that Master of Disguise? Yeah. Did you know? Yeah. Fun fact. You know that turtle scene in Master of Disguise was filmed during 9-11? No. That's... <laughs> like, they had a moment of silence while Dana Carvey was dressed as a fucking turtle. <laughs> what a sad sight. Oh, my goodness. That is... That is that's that's awesome actually yeah it's not even false uh, um so uh he asks on a serious note he says do you think that i'm choosing to reveal hardware specs without any physical reveal of the machine was a mistake do you feel like we should be seeing what this thing looks like by now we definitely should i don't know if it's necessarily a mistake of them to reveal the hardware specs before they show a physical machine because i think for i mean in large part i think every console has done this this way they've shown off in some in some way or another, maybe it's a blog post on uh, the company's site or some other extraneous details kind of mined out of an interview from some article before the hardware is actually officially revealed. But I do think if you're going to be, you know, Xbox or PlayStation and you're going to put out a video to your consumer base and you're going to talk about the specs, that's not ideal. Because I think most people, your average person doesn't really care about specs. Specs are definitely more for the enthusiast crowd, which is why it makes sense that those details are revealed in articles on like Ars Technica or like stuff like that. Um, but your first video reveal of like what your next generation system system should be on a consumer level should absolutely be the machine. Like we should see it by now. Like there's no excuse why we haven't seen it by now. I guess they're probably still finalizing things because like maybe they they saw the outbreak as a little bit more of a threat and they're like, oh, maybe we'll take this opportunity to kind of revise a little bit but I, I i we're we're in we're almost in april and we've seen the xbox series x since december so i, I don't know I, I i really feel like this is just not the way you go about it yeah it, it begs the question if you have to be reactionary to your competition or not and I think Microsoft's inability to be reactive to what Sony was doing in 2013 
is a sign that, yeah, you probably should at least be paying some close attention. Now, Sony's schedule, they're, they're right on schedule in terms of showing the box and stuff like I don't think we saw the controller or the box until E3 uh, in 2013, if I recall. Maybe I'm wrong on that. But I remember going hands on with the controller for the first time at E3. So I think that that is the case. And so I'm not super fretting personally about not seeing the box. I, I, it's more of a curiosity thing at this point, especially because the Series X is so big that I want to see if the PS5 is noticeably smaller. I think it's going to be. It's also noticeably less powerful, although. But I, and I do want to ask you about that. What do you think about the power differential? I know that it's it's hard for me to to differentiate between marketing speak and reality in this regard. I think Digital Foundry did a really nice video that we recommended on Sacred Symbols Plus that people go watch where they talk about how you can't really reduce the power differential to just sheer numbers, but rather how they use what mm -hmm. they have. Uh, do you think that this power differential makes much of a difference? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think it's enough to really say that the I don't think I don't think the power differential is enough to say that the Xbox Series X is insanely powerful compared to the PS5. I, I don't really think that's true. I think what ultimately what you're going to be getting is very, very similar experiences. Maybe later on in the console's life cycle, you will start to see games maybe performing a little bit worse on the PS5 than the Series X. Although I, even then, I would probably assume that it's a pretty negligible difference. I'm I'm not too concerned about the power differential. They're they're both insanely powerful machines, and uh, the fact that they both use SSDs in the way that they're using them is 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 pretty bodes pretty well for the future of our games. All right. Well, we'll have more hopefully to say about the console in the uh, near future. Um, we do have one more somewhat relevant thing to talk about here, though, in, in regards to it before we move on completely. Number two. Is PlayStation 5 going to get delayed out of 2020 and come out in 2021 instead? You'll recall that in last week's 52-minute PS5 presentation helmed by Sony's Mark Cerny, it was noted that the console would be coming out later this year. But according to Dutch website Let's Go Digital, that might not be the case. Coronavirus, which emerged out of China late last year and currently has the world in its grasp, is causing economic turmoil around the planet, especially in mainland China, where a majority of our electronics, including PlayStation products, are created. Let's Go Digital reported that BAAS, the PR firm that represents PlayStation in Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands, or Benelux, the website that coronavirus hasn't yet delayed the console's launch internally, but BAAS later reached out to the website to tell them that the PR firm isn't actually authorized to speak out publicly on the matter. So it remains in the air, but the answer and then clarification isn't good news. At the time this episode of Sacred Symbols is being recorded, the American market has lost more than a third of its value, and projections indicate that the United States may be facing an unemployment rate at Great Depression levels in the second quarter of this year. A bad sign for any company looking to sell consumer electronics on the world's biggest market. Fat Spirito wrote into us, Chris, on Patreon. It says, with, the, with Apocalypse 2K20 in full swing, how long until we see a true effect on the video game industry? By this, I mean, isn't it inevitable? This is going to cause a myriad of delays. I still put my money down that this thing ain't coming out this year. Yeah, I know that I know that they they did double down on this in their presentation. I think they also said it in a PR release that it's coming out this year, but it just doesn't seem like it should or will. But I don't know. I mean, I'd love to be wrong because I want it. But what do you think? Do you think we're going to see this thing this year? No, I don't think so. It, it really does depend on how quickly we sort this stuff out, but it, it looks like it's going to be a while. Um, a lot of experts are saying, like, what's like to the end of the year, 
Like we are like here in Los Angeles, we are under lockdown until like April like 19th or something. Like it's only like non-essentials. Like or like we can only leave for like essential stuff. So it's 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 getting pretty crazy over here and I don't imagine it's going to slow down anytime soon and it's definitely affecting the market in like really 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 profound ways. And yeah, it's not a smart time to release anything on that level of with anything that's the price tag of a of a new console is probably not something that's going to do well during a great depression. <laughs> Typically is how I look at it. So, yeah. I I, w- I would bet next year is probably when it's going to come out, maybe February, maybe like March or something. I believe that's when the PS2 launched. So, it seems like a reasonable time to release something if you can't release it in the fall. Yeah, I think that yeah, when did PS2 PS2 came out in the fall in the America. US? But it, yeah, I think it did come out the first quarter in. I'm just looking it up real quick because I want the date. Yeah, March 4th in Japan. So you're right there. And I think and obviously Switch came out uh, early in the year and, and proved to be a smash success as well. Yeah, I think that the problem, the really overbearing problem here is the supply chain, because there are a lot of pon- there's a lot of pontification about what's going to happen to the market and what is happening to the market and how long it's going to last. But and that's a huge problem. Consumer spending, if people have no money to spend, they're not going to spend it. But the bigger problem is, is if that if we have a fast recovery, which people also think is possible, like a, a serious GDP dip and then totally climb back by the end of the year, the, the reality is, is that we're still all going to be behind financially. The market's going to be behind financially. And Sony will not have been able to manufacture enough components to and enough machines to satisfy demand unless demand is really low, at which point you have to question whether you're supposed to to release the machine at all. So I think that there are a lot of different ways to look at this and it would be awesome for it to come out this fall. And I know that they're doubling down on that and they might not really know yet, but I think it's a mistake to release the console in fraught economic times, obviously. And I also think it's a mistake to release the console if you can't satiate demand because with two consoles coming out at the same time, if you can't get one, you might want to just go get the other and then you're locked in. Most people don't have the money or the means or the wherewithal to want both consoles. So you need to make sure that you have enough to flood the market. You want to have these things on the shelf. It's not a bad optical game to have plenty of PS5s available. It just means people are going to be able to buy them. So I think that there are a lot of different reasons why you should expect that this thing won't come out this year. And I think it's just an unholy alliance of all of this shit that's happening all at the same time. So we have to just uh, work our way through it and see how everything goes and then how we recover and go from there. But they might be in a waiting pattern, too, because even if they start manufacturing in this, this summer and this fall, which they obviously will one way or the other, they can just keep them in warehouses until they're ready to, to box them and ship them away. So they have to just figure all of these things out. But with what we were hearing from Bloomberg before all this coronavirus stuff even occurred, when they released an article saying that they're really in a competitive market for components and it's driving costs up, there's just a lot working against this right now. So I, I think they probably need the console on their books to make money, but they need to balance how the rollout occurs. 
Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. All right. Chris, number three, American games retailer GameStop has officially closed its store. It stores to in-person commerce, according to a press release from the corporation. This news comes on the back of a Kotaku report indicating the struggling company informed its thousands of storefronts to remain open, even in the face of law enforcement pressure, and that their operation falls under the essential category. GameStop's press release reads in part, quote, GameStop will temporarily stop customers access to storefronts, processing orders on a digital only basis, moving to curbside pickup at stores and e-commerce delivery only. This will allow the company to continue to serve customers who have purchased online and have requested a product pickup at their local store, end quote. The company's CEO, George Sherman, noted in part, quote, this is an unprecedented time and each day brings new information about COVID-19 pandemic. Our priority has been and continues to be on the well-being of our employees, customers and business partners, end quote. The press release later states, quote, all U.S. GameStop employees have been ensured that they do not have to work if they are not comfortable and should stay home if they feel sick. Additionally, the company has announced it will pay all U.S. employees whose hours have been eliminated an additional two weeks at their regular pay rate on the average hours worked in the last 10 days. In addition, the company will reimburse all benefit eligible U.S. employees one month of the employee portion of benefit expenses, end quote. GameStop stock is currently trading at about $3.50 a share, down from an all-time high of $62. Whew. Dave Ramos wrote in and said, hey, safe for now, Colin and shelter in place, Chris. I'm wondering what your thoughts are with GameStop claiming they are essential retail. If they were so essential, why would they be losing so much money to the point? It's questionable how they're still in business. Maybe you guys can play devil's advocate and find a way they're an essential business. At the time I'm writing this, GameStops in California were ordered by management to close, and I'm expecting the same here in New York shortly. Love the show. Stay safe. Well, yes, Dave, since you wrote in, they've ordered all stores shut, as we said. I don't think that them being essential has anything to do with it. I think that they are dying and they can't they literally cannot afford this shutdown. This this happens for all the companies that are in a lot of trouble right now. This is really bad for obviously liquidity. And it's cool that they're paying their employees, I guess, two weeks if they've if their hours have been eliminated. But that's really not going to last very long 
and obviously a reimbursement for their uh, benefits, the part of the benefits that they pay. But that's just going to make GameStop's excuse me situation even worse. What did you think of this whole fiasco? This was an interesting thing to watch roll out. Yeah, it was weird. I I I, <laughs> I have no idea how they would be considered retail or essential retail. Like there's no there's no way the fans are what's about it. They're definitely like just staying open because they can't afford to close. And especially because two of the biggest games this year so far have just come out in Doom Eternal and Animal Crossing. I think it's probably like the biggest day for them since probably last year at any point. So I think they they just really wanted to stay open for those two launches uh, in particular. But yeah, they they can't they can't continue on if they're just going to close for good and and if people are if people can't get their stuff at GameStop and they're typically people who are like really diehard physical media people uh they might just straight up I don't know buy the game on Amazon if they want a box or just join the rest of us and start digitally downloading stuff I think this is going to push a lot of people towards digital and uh that's going to be really bad for GameStop regardless of what happens yeah, I think this is going to be basically it for them. You know, it's it's sad because you don't want this is such an unfortunate situation because I mean, for so many reasons, so many people are struggling and so many people are hurting, but it all begins with the companies that are hurting and that it can't afford to pay their people. And so that trickle down begins in earnest. And so it's just really exposing the weakest companies, but it's not really, I mean, it's certainly not, it's not really fair. It's not, it's certainly not fair because this has nothing to do with the market. This is the government. And this is why this is so hard to deal with and so uncertain. And there's, I was listening to a podcast where an economist was saying like, we don't really know what's going to happen because this has never happened before where the government has basically said like, we're just shutting the economy down. Like this is happening because of this virus, but it's also happening because the government's just like, no, we can't risk exposing people to this thing. So there's no like built in moral hazard into into this economic downturn, just like there was in 1929 or there was in 2008, where you can identify the housing bubble and the housing crisis and mortgage backed securities and all these things that caused the economy to fall. This time, it's just like the, the, the economy was booming and unemployment was at an all time low. Workforce participation was at an all time high. Wages were up like everything was good. And then this just slaughtered us and it it sucks. So GameStop is unless you're like a supermarket or a, a box store or something, you're you're in pretty bad shape right now. And um, it is really sad. I don't know how else to put it, except for that. I'm, I'm thinking about everyone out there because. You know, the real heroes right now are not only the medical professionals, obviously, but also the truck drivers and the store clerks and the stock people and all of that kind of stuff. The people that are putting food on the shelves and keeping the farms working and manufacture of food and all that. It's like if you're not in those truly essential markets, you're in bad shape. So I think the only people that, you know, the only companies that are really benefiting from this unfortunate reality are the the most essential and core corporations that exist. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on. Number four, Final Fantasy VII Remake's release on April 10th will go ahead as planned, according to a posting by publisher Square Enix on the official Remake Twitter account. In a pair of text-laden images, Square Enix said in part, quote, 
Due to the extraordinary circumstances the world is facing with COVID-19 pandemic, we want to update you on how this will impact the forthcoming release of Final Fantasy VII Remake. Our priority is the well-being and safety of our fans and customers, taking into account regional government and World Health Organization advice. The worldwide release of Final Fantasy VII Remake on April 10th will go ahead. However, with the unforeseeable changes in the distribution and retail landscape, which varies across countries, it is increasingly likely that some of you will not get a hold of your copy of the game on the release date. We are monitoring the situation on a daily basis and working with our partners, retailers, and Square Enix teams across Europe and the Americas to do everything we can to ensure many of you, as many of you as possible can play the game on April 10th, end quote. In other words, if you ordered the game physically, you may want to make other plans. Digital distribution shouldn't be affected. This is something that is unfortunate for people that were really looking forward to physical, the physical release of the game and the special editions, but it's cool of Square Enix to announce this far ahead of time so people can make other plans. And I think this goes back to what you were saying, Chris, that this is just going to push people into digital, which I think is good. I mean, I think this is a good thing. I think this finally gets us away further from physical releases outside of your limited releases or if you want to have that option. But I, what, what's cool about this to me is that I think for people that are just so strictly physical, these forced realities of either not playing the game for a while or downloading it will show them that it's not the boogeyman that they think it is. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah, no, I, I totally think so. I think um, I think there's a lot of weird assumptions about digital media. It's like, oh, you don't own it. And it's like, well, you don't really own your disc either. Like, you, like I think Spyro, uh, when that came out, you that didn't even have the whole game on the disc. It only had the first game. So you had to download the rest of it from the Internet. Like most of our games, even when they're on disc are digital anyway. So I, I just think people just need to kind of realize that and just sort of wake up because honestly, it's so convenient. It's such an it's so much more convenient than a disc could ever be. And I'm like, I am one of those people. I get it. Like I, I do miss like opening up a, a new game and like, ah, oh, the new the new game smell, which is just all a bunch of toxic ink, but you love it anyway. And like the little manual that comes in it, it's like it's a nice experience, uh, but it's 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 going away, man. It's 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 gone. And honestly, as much as I like that aspect of physical media and I, I kind of miss that and I'm nostalgic for it, I don't know if I would go back to needing to buy a disc. Yeah, it, to me, Chris, I just I, I get it, too. Like, I get that some people like it, but I think you made the the really good call here that. Spyro is just a great example, but even other like Days Gone, for instance, if you bought the disc and you didn't connect it to the Internet, you have this pretty broken version of the game. I mean, it's not to excuse that kind of shit happening. I think it sucks, but it is to say that you're the Internet and the connectivity of the consoles have long been giving you the supreme version of the game anyway. It's already patched like we patched Twin Breaker, for instance, and if you and it's physical, well, we're going to have physical editions, but the digital versions that most people will play they are going to come patched like you're just going to get the best version of the game. There's nothing else you have to really do in order to get that best version. And I, I don't really see how and why that would be so calamitous. So it's good that they're giving people other options. I think this will finally push other people away from physical media. And I'm still surprised. I hear from I used to back in the PS3 era, people used to really say, like, I don't play downloadable games. I don't download games. And I'm like, you're missing out on a lot of really great shit. But OK. But I still hear some people say that in this generation, including recently. And I'm like, how is that possible? Like, how are you not playing anything that's digital? There's so, there are so many games that are only digital that are excellent. It's got to you know? be it's got to be data caps, right? It's got to be, you know, uh, cable companies with 
really strict data caps that people don't want to people don't want to go over at the risk of being charged some stupid amount of money. And or maybe you're in the middle or maybe you're like in the Midwest where the Internet isn't super, super great. I know that that's a that's a that's a big deal for people out there. But even then, man, even then you go get go get Spyro in the in the Midwest. Go get Spyro in Ohio (laughs) and like see how long it takes you to download that the rest of that game. It's probably gonna take you eight days. Insane. Yeah, I think you make a good point just in the sense that it's. There are certainly data caps and limitations and all of this kind of stuff that's happening. But at the same time, I think that there's a lot of stubbornness out there. And I just don't want people to be missing out on these really supreme experiences that can only be had in a digital ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Most games are not uh, physical releases. PS4 was the first generation where every game had to be available digitally. So everything that's on PS4 is digital and there's just so many good games out there that either get just a limited run, like we're getting of physical releases, but more likely don't get released physically at all. And I'm not saying that, you know, there are over 4,000 games on the console. I'm not saying that there are, you know, like even half of those games are worth your time, but I'm saying, I just want people to be a little bit more open-minded because I don't want people missing. There's a lot of people that think that like, it's just the triple A shit that matters, just the $60 game, whatever. And I'm not saying that just because we released the game. I'm just saying there are plenty of games that are five, ten, twenty dollars on PSN that are way better than many AAA games that sell millions of copies. So keep an open mind out there, you fuck faces. <laughs> All right. Number five. Rumors of a Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 remaster have been bubbling for nearly two years now. As website Push Square notes, the game originally popped up with a Peggy rating back in early 2019, indicating that it was quite real. But then all things went quiet again until right now. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 Remastered has been rated for release on PlayStation 4 and elsewhere in South Korea via the Korean Games Rating Organization, another indication that we're about to receive the Infinity Ward Classic on Modern Machinery. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 came to PlayStation 3 and elsewhere back in the fall of 2009, and it sold nearly 25 million copies across platforms. It was Infinity Ward's fourth game following the original Call of Duty and its sequel, as well as 2007's Modern Warfare. You'll recall that Call of Duty Modern Warfare Remastered came out back in the fall of 2016, ported and remastered for modern consoles by Activision-owned support studio Raven. So it makes perfect sense that Modern Warfare 2 would be next on the docket, though the publisher hasn't yet confirmed anything. Chris, is this something you want? Were you a fan of uh, 2009's Modern Warfare 2? I did play a lot of Modern Warfare 2, but also this is my personal hell. The idea that we are going through the rest of this decade with presumably... What feels like a remaster of every Call of Duty from the previous decade. Really, uh, <laughs> that is so unsettling to me. Like, I felt my, my heart sank when I read this news. So I was like, oh, no. When are we going to get, like, a Black Ops remastered? And then, like, a Black Ops 2 remastered? And then a Black Ops remastered, remastered in the 2030s? This, this, kind, this is really kind of emblematic to me of Call of Duty as a as a series where it's like oh my god they're just they're not even trying to not look like they're doing the same things over and over again at this point. I guess it's working for them because I don't know if is it in the news later it might be that I think it is in the news a little bit later but I think I just mentioned it in passing but their Warzone free to play battle royale has now more than 30 million people played it. Yeah. So it's it's amazing that they they do get away with it, but they're getting away with it because the market is is letting them. The bigger confusion for me here is just like there are now 
three Modern Warfare lines because there's the original Modern Warfare line and then the remastered Modern Warfare and then the Modern Warfare that came out last year. That's like a. That's just like a different game, isn't it? Yeah. So like so I, I don't understand the naming conventions are what annoy me the most. Like, why do they need to name this new game Modern Warfare? But nonetheless, I, I think I don't even rem- I honestly don't even remember what's different about any of these games. These were games that I did play the the um, uh, campaigns for. I do remember the Modern Warfare three stuff the best because I loved it's about World War three and I loved the logo, how it would it would say like uh, MW three and then the M would flip over and it would say World War three or whatever. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I, re- I remember I just loved that marketing. I thought that, that was really cool. But uh, speaking of this confusion, Rob Armour wrote into us and said, hey, lads, so I just finished playing the Modern Warfare campaign. So he's talking about the new Modern Warfare that came out last year. And while it's ultimately as formulaic as any of the previously released games, what definitely stood out were the production values, especially in cutscenes. Activision must have sunk a shit ton of money into this. Checking trophy completion, it shows that only a third of people even bothered to complete it. At what point do they just decide to give it up for good and stick to multiplayer a la Black Ops 4 or even have a dual release with the multiplayer suite and then a free battle royale for everyone? Be curious to know your thoughts. This is interesting. This is why trophy data is so interesting to read. It's cool to know who has things and how how rare your trophies are, but it's especially good insight into who's completing what. And um, that is a little distressing to me that only a third of players or so have beaten modern warfare because as he mentioned black ops 4 which came out the year before didn't have its campaign at all now that wasn't the intent as i've told people here on the show and i have on good authority that the campaign just wasn't good so they didn't put it in the game they just didn't finish it it was that wasn't the idea but it this does don't you think chris give them data to suggest that maybe the money they're putting into this thing is just not worth the spend when people are just playing the multiplayer because I don't what I don't get out of what or rather what I get out of the numbers is not that a third of people are beating the game. It's that two thirds of the people buying the game are probably not even playing the campaign at all. I know people that play Call of Duty that literally do not even start the campaign. Like oh, don't yeah. even check it out. That's what I that's that's what I was doing for years. I, I played a little bit of Modern Warfare 2's campaign and then completely ditched it. I think the only Call of Duty I've ever beaten was Call of Duty 4. Like I finished that one and I was like, OK, that was a campaign, I guess. And uh, that was that was about it. And I think most people really don't play the campaign. But at the same time, you know, a third of people playing, you know, playing the campaign, that's not really all that great. But it's also in the context of a game that sells like Call of Duty sells. A third of the audience is a is a pretty large number as far as numbers like raw numbers go. Like that's still a lot of people. And that's more than I thought it would be, honestly. I, I, if I were to guess, I would have guessed like 10 to 15 percent of people would be playing the, the Call of Duty campaigns because it's just not a campaign game. It's a multiplayer suite. It is a multiplayer juggernaut. And that's the main reason people buy it. I'm, I'm shocked that even a third of people play it. I'm reading the trophies now. It's hard for me to... All right. Complete the campaign on any difficulty. I mean, his numbers aren't even right. Complete the campaign on any difficulty is 22.3. Complete the game. uh, Complete the single player uh, missions on veteran or realism is 1.5. So these numbers are low. And I don't think that there are any only 0.5% of people even have the platinum. 
And I don't think that there are any multiplayer trophies. So I think that this is just, yeah, this is just the way it is. And it's too bad. But yeah, I, I'll, I'm, I, I think the point's well taken. And I'd be interested to see what the reaction is to, to these numbers when they now have two games to compare and contrast with Black Ops 4. And then this new Modern Warfare, one having a campaign and one not. And it doesn't seem like it really affected sales. Uh, it just seemed Black Ops 4 didn't seem to be affected at all by its lack of a campaign. So, yeah, I mean, ideally, you just want your game to be as varied as possible and you want to have as many options of play as possible. And uh, I think a campaign is a pretty good way of getting people who, you know, might not have the best Internet and maybe aren't the best at the game to get the game and find some enjoyment out of it. Because you don't want to lock out everybody. You don't want to lock out people who, like, don't have access to Internet. Or like reliable connection, I should say. Certainly. Yeah, they have something to decide. I'll be really interested to see when they release, obviously, 2020's Call of Duty, what it will contain. And we'll figure it out from there. Number six, Media Molecule's Dreams is quietly trucking along with a small audience, but that small audience has garnered the attention of a mighty force, Nintendo. According to a report on website Eurogamer, Nintendo is officially lodging complaints with Sony and its fully owned team at Media Molecule over the use of its IP in Dreams particularly when it comes to Mario. The article points to one Twitter account in particular, at Piece of Craft, which wrote in a series of tweets in part that he flew too close to the sun, in quotes, and that a big video game company, in quotes, has requested the takedown of his Mario-based game on the platform. He noted that he received an email from Sony Interactive Entertainment Europe's legal and business affairs department relaying word on Nintendo's distaste. It's unclear if anyone else has yet been affected, though this comes as no surprise as Nintendo is largely known as the gaming industry's most litigious organization, when it comes to piracy, protecting its IP, emulation, and more. I got to be honest, I didn't even consider this when I was thinking about Dreams. This is a whole nother layer of oh, really? issues. No, I just never considered that anyone would give a shit about what they were doing. So Yeah, I kind of assumed that this would happen, but at the same time, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little bit weird because how do you... How do you... Because re- like, no one's buying Dreams to play Mario. And it, it, it's kind of like... It's kind of like being like, hey, you can make Mario art in Photoshop. Can you sue Photoshop? Like, can you can you take down Adobe just because you can make something that resembles something that already exists and it's not strictly for profit? Like, there, there's, there's a pretty interesting legal conversation to to be had here because I'm not sure if there's really that much of a precedent for this. Yeah, I don't know what to really make of it because you make an interesting point, but I guess it's more about not the creation, but the distribution. Because he was saying in these follow-up tweets that he can still make edits or whatever, but like doesn't have access to upload it or something anymore. So I think that might be the difference between something like Photoshop or Illustrator and then Something like Dreams is just that it's inherently a distributive platform. Right. But at the same time, it's not really using like it's it's impossible for the Dreams version of whatever Mario game this guy was working on to use any Nintendo official assets. Like I remember this was actually a big deal in I think like a year or two ago. I can't remember exactly when, but uh, there was a game called Halo Online that Microsoft had published in Russia of all places and then just abandoned and a bunch of fans kind of mined the data out of it and managed to make a perfect PC port 
of Halo 3, which hadn't actually been seen before. And Microsoft had to come at come at them and be like, hey, you know, this is cool, but also like you got to stop. We got to protect our IP. But the legal recourse they had was because it was a product that Microsoft had licensed that was using assets from from a property that they owned. It wasn't like if somebody was building something from the ground up and distributing it and distributing it. I don't really know if it would. I don't know if it's the, really the same claim to ownership, especially if you can't sell the thing. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I guess Sony is just protecting itself. And I would imagine yeah. this isn't going to end. I guess it's kind of complimentary that Nintendo's paying attention to what's going on on Dreams. But yeah, it's just something to keep in mind if you guys are out there making any of your own creations on there. Just uh, Nintendo's going to come get you. Just be careful. <laughs> Number seven, mega publisher slash developer Ubisoft's CEO, Yves Guillemot, has sent an uplifting note to all of his employees around the world in the face of the coronavirus, ensuring his workforce that they will be taken care of during the economic trials and tribulations that lie ahead. The letter comes by way of website Kotaku and reads in part, quote, we are now in a pandemic with far reaching effects on our daily lives. At this exceptional juncture, it is essential that we take special care of ourselves and our loved ones. The health and well-being of Ubisoft team members is our primary concern, and we have taken the necessary steps to ensure that all of you are safe and get the right support through these demanding changes. In particular, we have been encouraging all of our collaborators to work from the safety of their homes since the end of last week. Ellipsis. As for the potential impact of the pandemic on our business, not only do we have sufficient cash reserves to take us through the storm, but Ubisoft's international scope and our collaborative spirit also put us in a position to redeploy some of our activities away from affected regions if need be. End quote. Ubisoft has received some critical heat recently after receiving a, re- releasing a few duds, including the recent Ghost Recon game. It did, however, release a major new DLC pack for The Division 2, especially timely considering what that game is about and what's happening in the real world all around us. As you might recall, listeners, uh, The Division is all about a thing called the dollar flu yeah. and a pandemic. Really cool. So, really cool timing. Yeah, so, so great timing. So first of all, that's really nice. And yeah. it's cool to see that reaction. Ubisoft is... Heavily capitalized, no doubt, as he says, and no one's getting laid off, it looks like. And as long as, you know, video games can be made remotely. I don't know exactly how that's going to work for the collaborative spirit of video games, but at least everything's done over the computer. By the way, I will say that I think this is going to show a lot of companies that they don't need to have offices. Oh, yeah, for sure. When it doesn't really affect the ability of people to do their work. Like, I feel like having an office space is such, such unnecessary overhead. I would never have an office space. So I just wanted to throw that out there that I think this will prove uh, a nice boon for some companies once we get through it. Michael Vecchio wrote in and said, hey, Colin and Chris, with most, if not all major developers shutting their offices down for the duration of the coronavirus outbreak, do you think there will be an influx of indie games made by smaller teams in the coming months? I don't know, Chris. I, I My instinct to this is to say, like, I don't think this helps indie games at all because people people are going to be buying more games but indie developers are typically, as the name suggests, independent of the publishing arms and the financial security that comes along with that and are usually making their games, at least originally, on the side or at great cost to themselves. Yeah. So there's a bit of a conflict here with the availability of indie games and the need for more games right now, good games, with the reality that a lot of people are probably losing their means to support themselves and make those games to begin with if they're unaffiliated with a publisher. But what do you think? You think we'll see more indie games because of this downturn? Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think I think a lot of indie devs are really kind of they might be totally screwed here because now they don't necessarily have the financial security to devote that free time that they had spending, you know, making their game. They have to like now 
look for other means of, you know, monetary gain. And it's probably not going to be all that good for anybody, for anybody working on an indie game that isn't already super profitable. You know, it's one thing if you're like a company that's put out something great and you've got like a a decent amount of money to fund your next project. But your average people who are probably making their first title are probably not going to be doing too well, I would imagine. Yeah, it's sad because this just squashes that that underbelly of the industry that allows these independent games to come out and allows people to kind of get going. And so if you don't have publisher backing or some sort of capital uh, crowdsourcing, whatever the case may be, I don't know that you're going to be able to get your game out or be able to make games. So I think there's just a tension there between what we would hope happen and what is actually happening, because I think that a lot of people, again, making these games are doing it on the side or they do it with freelance teams. People have real jobs. Maybe they work in an office or they're a barista or whatever the case might be. And um, everyone's hurting right now. So that's the unfortunate reality. So also independent games take way longer than a few months to make. So I don't think you're going to see any reactions from anyone in the coming months, but it will be interesting to see what embryonically began now come out later. Jared Kellogg wrote into us and he said, CNC, while listening to this week's podcast, I noticed that you were discussing how working from home while developing a game might be detrimental to games like Cyberpunk, making it out on time. However, I wanted to mention that Moon Studios, makers of the two Sublime Ori games, are a completely virtual studio, and most of the devs had only met each other several years into the development of the first game. Yet the games they make are so perfectly stitched together that you could never even tell the difference. My question is this. With the unavoidable need to work from home, do you think more game developers will begin to be formed virtually, be it in the middle or I'm sorry, be it in the indie or triple A scene? And what would you think about becoming the norm in the future? I'd be curious to see how this would affect the crunch discussion the industry has been participating in the past few years. Thanks for everything. And as always, happy third to CLS, Colin. Thank you. Colin's last stand did just turn three years old on March 20th. So I didn't know that. Did you know that about Moon Studios? I did not know that. I had no clue. Yeah, I didn't know that. But uh, again, what I think that it probably I don't I think the Ori games are cool. I only played the first one, but the Ori games are great, but they're not cyberpunk. And I do think that there is just a different amount of production that goes into various games. So I think something like Ori is probably even pushing it as far as being done virtually. But I don't know that you can really make a game like cyberpunk effectively without at least having people in one place so you can share and have that collaborative spirit, even if you can share builds of the game with each other easily. So I did want to acknowledge that, yeah, I guess this is true. I mean, you're saying that Moon Studios is doing this, so that's awesome to hear. I hope that this is more of the norm because I think that it will allow people to own what they're doing, have less overhead and less cost. Real estate, whether you're leasing it, renting it, whatever, or owning it is really expensive. And I don't know that you... In the indie scene, I don't know that you gain much from being together. Maybe you do. Maybe it's just as easy as like having a place to go to work and get up in the morning and have a routine. Yeah. And that's certainly something I don't have. So I, I can appreciate that. But I don't know. I just don't know. Chris, do you have any other passing thoughts on this before we move on to what's next? No, I think um, I th- I think it makes a lot of sense to be a completely virtual studio, depending on what you're making. I think you're right. And that cyberpunk is definitely one of those games that you, you're not going to see a virtual studio make that. I, I, I don't think. I think there's far too much that goes into that kind of experience. There's far too much that goes into a God of War, and there's far too much that goes into a Spider-Man compared to um, a game like Ori, which no disrespect to Ori. Ori's great. But it's it's just you can tell that there's a different type of skill being displayed in Ori. 
Like it's it's far different. I don't even know how you would really craft a narrative or an experience like The Last of Us without having some in-person communication on some level because I do think a lot of communication is nonverbal and I think, you know, things can easily get lost in translation if you're just, you know, going through text messages or Discord chats or any number of other non-physical means of communicating. I think that would definitely like slow down development time for a lot of bigger projects. And it probably even slows down development for smaller projects, honestly. Like I can I can attest to this actually because I was working on a game a long time ago with a friend of mine from the UK and we just never got around to finishing it just because this is just hard to communicate. And that's just what happens. Indeed. Indeed. Well, we'll see how it all plays out. Again, I think we're going to see a different sort of economy come out of this uh, these ashes. Yeah. And we'll see how everyone kind of reacts to it. Number eight, Sabotage Studio, the team behind the exceptional side-scrolling action Metroidvania type game, The Messenger, is creating a new game in that universe. It's called Sea of Stars, and although it's a prequel to The Messenger, it has nothing to do with the original game's playstyle. Rather, it's a turn-based RPG in the 16-bit and 32-bit tradition, and appears to be heavily inspired by Chrono Trigger. It's still a ways out yet, and isn't planned to launch until 2022, and it's currently being crowdfunded on Kickstarter, where it has already far surpassed its initial asking price. The Messenger came to PC and Switch back in the summer of 2018 and finally came to PS4 in early 2019. What console Sea of Stars is aiming for remains to be seen at the present time, although considering its 2022 goal, it'll likely be on PlayStation 5. It's unclear if Sabotage is working in concert with any publisher, however. The original Messenger was published by indie darling Devolver Digital. Ben Woth wrote in and said, Hey, Colin and Chris. Colin, as a fan of The Messenger and a turn-based RPG fan, what do you think of Sea of Stars? I think it looks amazing and has gone straight to the top of my most anticipated games list. This game looks exceptional. Chris, I don't know if you went and saw any of the trailers. Uh, yeah, the I trailer did. For it. I looked it up. It looks it looks really cool. It looks great. I, I think the the combat and the perspective of the combat does seem to be heavily inspired by Chrono Trigger. I don't know if it's going to play quite like that, but it looks awesome. And I love the idea of having a universe where there and it's not to say this is unique to the messenger, but where there are just different play styles and different kind of perspectives that you get to get the full story or the whole lore of the world. And even within the messenger, I mean, the messenger kind of changes itself when you play it going from a linear to a more nonlinear game about halfway through. So it's cool. I'm really excited about this. The one piece of confusion I have is I don't understand how Sabotage needs to crowdfund this. I think that these sorts of Kickstarter campaigns, I think it's, and I don't say this because we have one. I think Patreon's different. I think some of these like more subscription models are interesting and cool, but I feel like Kickstarter is for people that are trying to like prove themselves for the first time. This game certainly would have been picked up by someone, I think. So I don't really know what the rationale behind that is, but it looks really, really great. And I'm excited for it. It doesn't come out for two years or more, but yeah, I'll certainly be all over it when it does. Number nine, Hello Games, the British team behind the controversial title No Man's Sky, is releasing a new game this summer. It's called The Last Campfire, and it's a bit of a side project for the developer. In a post on the PlayStation blog, Hello Games leader Sean Murray notes that, quote, No Man's Sky continues to be a major focus of the studio, and our PlayStation community can expect a lot more from us in the future. Secretly in the background, though, a small offshoot team has been working on something altogether intimate and beautiful, end quote. He notes that The Last Campfire was actually announced back in late 2018 after No Man's Sky's launch controversy, but before it was fully uh, fixed and fleshed out with a major so-called Beyond update. 
though it had received its next update and other patches before that. The Last Campfire is a cartoonish adventure game with a beautiful aesthetic, and you can see a new trailer on the PlayStation blog. Chris, did you... Uh, I, first of all, I didn't remember that this was an announced, but it was. The... Do you how do you feel about them releasing a game like I wonder if Hello Games now has this weight on everything they release because of No Man's Sky that's going to hurt them in the future. I mean, people forget that they really started as a really small team making a game that was originally exclusive to PS3 called Joe Danger. And they just seem to have this weight now on them, like around their neck because of what happened with No Man's Sky. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think every time I see them, every time I every time I see Hello Games, I definitely think of the No Man's Sky launch, but I also think of the way they turned it around and how people actually like really like No Man's Sky now. It really is. It's probably one of the better redemption stories for like a developer that I've seen, um, especially just because they were just they were just so 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 low when No Man's Sky came out. I think that like it was crashing constantly, even just even just beyond the incorrect marketing about what the game even was and what was going to be in it. Just from a pure functionality standpoint, it didn't run well. It didn't. It it didn't run at all in some cases. So to see them kind of climb back up and be like, "Hey, you know, here's a new thing that we're working on." I remember they they revealed this a long time ago. I don't remember when though. When did they really? When did they reveal this? They said that it, I think it was revealed at the Game Awards in 2018. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I remember. I definitely remember this before. I don't know. I, I don't know if the, I don't know if the wait is that much now i think if anything it's kind of improved because i do definitely think of like when they fucked up but i also think of how they turned it around so it might it might just be a boon for them we will see we'll see looks cute it does it does look cute probably not gonna play it but it does look cute (laughs) number 10 back in 1999 a game called shadow man came to nintendo 64 with ports later coming to pc ps1 and dreamcast Shadow Man was a third-person action game based upon a comic book series that began in the early 90s, also called Shadow Man. Now, thanks to website Game Rant, we know that the game is receiving a remastered port and that the port will be coming to PlayStation 4 and other platforms. The remastering and porting will be handled by Night Dive Studios, which has been coming up a lot on this show recently, most recently for its port of Doom 64, the 90s Blade Runner PC game, and much more, as well as its upcoming remake of System Shock. The Shadow Man video game was originally created and published by defunct company Acclaim, and actually received a, a sequel on PlayStation 2 called Shadow Man Second Coming, which also uh, which launched in early 2002, also from Acclaim. It's unclear if Night Dive Studios and the comic book publisher Valiant have any plans for the sequel as of yet, and it's also unclear when the original remaster will launch. I totally forgot about this game. I went and uh, watched some gameplay when I saw this story. It looks like shit. I really want to see. <laughs> it really does. It looks like shit. The game looks no, like shit. No, I, I, tra- I looked up a trailer for it, and I was uh, honestly shocked by what I was seeing. It's uh, interesting that these uh, these guys at Night Dive are getting all of this work. I was looking at their Wikipedia page. They're just porting everything left, right and center. They have a lot of games on their hands. So good for them. But this is a weird one for me. I don't understand why they would go back to this. Well, not they, but I guess Valiant and the stakeholders will go back to this one. So uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Just another one of the many old school 90s remasters that are coming soon. And finally, Chris, number 11 is a wrap up. Website Gamatsu reports that hack and slash side scroller Bushiden or Bushiden, I'm sorry, has been delayed and will now come to PS4 in the summer of 2021 instead of this summer. Gamatsu also reports that puzzle game Evans Remains will come to PS4 on June 11th, that quirky arena shooter Quantum League is coming to PS4 at some point later in 2020, that roguelike Curious Expedition is coming to PS4 on March 31st, and that farming sim Summer and Mara comes to PS4 later in 2020. 
The official PlayStation blog reports that hack and slasher creature in the well is coming to PS4 on March 31st. And that turn-based strategy game Warborn is coming to PS4 on June 12th. That game Warborn looks really, really cool if people want to check it out. Website Push Square reports that bus driving simulator Snakey Bus is coming to PS4 at an unknown point in the near future. And that racing game WRC9 is coming to PS4 on September 3rd, but will also be coming natively to PS5 upon the platform's release. And finally, as we mentioned earlier, Call of Duty Warzone has now surpassed 30 million total players in only a handful of weeks. A smash hit success for Activision's new free-to-play Battle Royale. That's all for the news, Chris. Let's get into the new game releases via the drop. As tradition dictates, you will go first. Alrighty. RFL Enhanced Edition comes to PS4. RFL Enhanced Edition is a 16-bit era Japanese-style role-playing game. Take in the beauty of a magical world floating above the clouds, then take on a menacing race of vampires hidden in the dark. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) All right. Next up is Dissection comes to PS4. I don't remember how I got into this house. I only know that I need to quickly find a way out because something terrible is walking around and looking for me. Avoid meeting a living corpse and find key items to progress through the game. Find the key to the front door and run away from this house. (laughs) (laughs) Run away from this house. Dogurai, or Dogurai, whatever the hell, comes to PS4. Dogurai is a retro-styled platformer with animal-like characters, graphics, and soundtrack designed with old portable games in mind, down to the limited color ranges and sprite sizes. Okay. (laughs) Duck Souls Plus comes to PS4 and Vita. Run, jump, and dash your way through traps to collect all the eggs. Duck Souls Plus is a fast-paced action platformer about a little duck with an incredible skill to dash and a mission. Find all the eggs to save his species. Well, that's nice. That is. Element Space comes to PS4. The year, 2199. Assemble an elite crew and make allies as factions of the Galactic Congress grapple to determine the fu- a future for humanity's space colonies. In this sci-fi tactical RPG, command Pyth- Pythams? I guess, yeah. Pythams squad through turn-based battles, strategize ideal positions, and uh, to decimate foes in 24 handcrafted stages. All right. Freedom Finger comes to PS4. <laughs> Freedom Finger is a music-driven side-scrolling shooter that sends you blasting through 40 levels of crazy cartoon action. Whether you want to chill and enjoy the story or crank the difficulty for a full for a butt blasting ridiculous challenge, we've got you covered. Mechorama comes to PS4 and PS Vita. Guide an adorable robot to safety after he crash lands on a strange cubic planet. Explore each level, rotating it in 3D to see all sides, looking for a way through. Use lifts and slide platforms to get around while looking out for dangers. 100 varied levels throws up new surprises. Mm. Weird. Weird sentence. Try your hand at creating your own levels with the level editor. So it's like, it sounds like Fez almost. Yeah, a little bit. Weird. Moons of Mad... Remember, by, by the way, remember whatever that guy's name is that made that game just had like a meltdown and disappeared, right? Isn't that what happened? Oh, Fez? Yeah, Phil Fish. Yeah, Phil he, Fish, right. He vanished. He just like canceled his game and vanished. <laughs> yeah, fuck, fuck Fez too. It's weird. And he vanished. I wonder, if he'll ever, I wonder if he'll ever come back. Moons of Madness comes to PS4. Moons of Madness is a first-person, story-driven cosmic horror game where the scientific exploration of Mars meets the supernatural dread of Lovecraft. As a technician stationed on Mars, you begin seeing and hearing things that aren't there. Visions, hallucinations, is that even what it is? Or are you slowly descending into madness? Sounds like my life. Odalis, The Dark Call, comes to PS4. The old gods have forgotten this land. Odalis is an exploration action game 
and loving homage to the 8-bit genre classics. You play as Haggis, a battle-weary warrior who must wield his sword once more to rescue his son from darkness. That game looks cool. Yeah. Gotta give it up to that one. Yeah. Cool, cool. One Piece Pirate Warriors 4 comes to PS4. Oh my god. One Piece Pirate Warriors 4 is the latest evolution of Pirate Warriors action. Based on the concept of experiencing a real One Piece battlefield, buildings will come crashing down during the action and attacks will throw up smoke and dust, placing you in the thick of the One Piece world. I still don't even know what that is. One Piece? It's, uh, it's yeah, uh, some I know anime. it's an anime, but... Yeah, it's yeah. been going on for like 8,000 years. <laughs> um, I think it's older than Land Before Time. Really? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I just oh. talked out of my ass. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it feels like it is, though. I was like, holy shit. Oniken comes to PS4. In a post-apocalyptic future controlled by a sinister corporation, ninja mercenary Zaku is the last hope for humanity, inspired by the demanding gameplay of 8-bit action platformers. There's a lot of 8-bit happening yeah. lately. Oniken pits your agility and swordplay against a gauntlet of enemies, traps, and challenging bosses. Paper Beast comes to PSVR. Experience a dreamlike odyssey through a wild and simulated ecosystem. Take off, uh, take off on an adventure. Connect with exotic and surprising creatures. Shape the environment to solve puzzles, or let your imagination guide you through an immense sandbox. I think I saw something about this that looked really strange. It looks like uh, the exact kind of game you'd want to play when you're high. Yeah, it's, uh, Sony has been promoting it a little bit, so yeah, it must be pretty good. Well, maybe we'll see. Star Wars Jedi Knight Jedi Academy comes to PS4. The online multiplayer classic comes to PS4 with trophies and modernized controls. Take on the role of a new student eager to learn the ways of the Force from Jedi Master Luke Skywalker. Interact with famous Star Wars characters as you face the ultimate choice. Fight for good and freedom on the light side or follow the path of power and evil to the dark side. The Room VR, A Dark Matter, comes to PSVR. The British Institute of Archaeology, London, 1908. The disappearance of an esteemed Egyptologist prompts a police investigation into the unknown. Explore cryptic locations, examine fantastic gadgets, and enter an otherworldly space, which blurs the line between reality and illusion. In the room VR, a dark matter. Oh boy. Twin Breaker, a sacred symbols adventure, comes to PS4 and PS Vita. The United States sends generation ships to nearby star systems to find new planets to colonize. But once in interstellar space, the ships mysteriously disappear. When clues emerge about the, mis the, about the missing spacecraft, two pilots jump through a wormhole into a story-driven brickbreaker in the spirit of Arkanoid and Breakout. Yeah, so I wrote this, and I think it's been edited down somehow or distilled somehow. I don't really remember, because there was much more to it than this, and I didn't edit it ever again. Right. But I think that, so I'm just giving people a little bit of insight into how it actually works, but I think it, I think it does the trick, but... Ben Williams wrote into us on uh, on Patreon and says, hello, gents. With Twin Breaker appearing on the drop this week, I took the liberty of putting Colin's first draft of the game description through Google Translate and translating it through 24 languages. <laughs> Latin, Latin really screwed it up. Please enjoy. So here's what it says. Two world war is wrong in the world if the United States fell and moved abroad so that people were thrown into new territories of the United States, as was the ship that the boat was carried by when two of the special two received money from the city when a statue of lakes the treatment of Marcus Morareth. That's what it said. How the hell? I don't know. <laughs> That's all. I have no idea. But, That's amazing. Uh, yeah, but our game Twin Breaker is out. It's 10 bucks for your local equivalent. Please go buy it and support it. Thank you. Oh, yeah, it's me. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're up now. <laughs> Vampire the Masquerade Coteries of New York comes to PS4. 
Vampires the Masquerade Coteries of New York is a narrative experience set in the rich universe of Vampire the Masquerade 5th edition. It presents the struggle for power between two vampiric factions, the Camarilla and the Anarchs, bathed in the night lights of the Big Apple. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Yu-Gi-Oh! Legacy of the Duelist Link Evolution comes to PS4. Experience 20 years of Yu-Gi-Oh! history with Yu-Gi-Oh! Legacy of the Duelist Link Evolution. Build your deck from over 10,000 cards and take on the most iconic duelists from the Yu-Gi-Oh! universe. Relive the stories from the original animated series through Yu-Gi-Oh! Vrains. What is that? I don't even know what that means. It's all capital letters. V-R-A-I-N-S. Yeah. That must mean something. I don't know what it means. All right. So those are all the games that come out this week. Obviously, we would love for you to check out our game. Mm -hmm. And there are a few other really good looking games as well. I don't know if this RFL game is any good, but it looks fucking awesome. I I looked it up. It looks like a 16-bit role-playing game from the days of yore. It looks excellent, but I don't uh, know if it actually is. Dark Call. Yep. Exactly. Odalis and Oniken. Yeah, there's quite a bit for you guys to mess around with. I would actually be interested in this Vampire the Masquerade game, but it doesn't have a platinum trophy, which I thought was kind of peculiar. It's a shame. All right, Chris, as tradition dictates, six questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas will wrap up our show. We'll begin with Alec Budge, who says, howdy, howdy, howdy. While I think Sony's upcoming exclusive games are more enticing than Microsoft's, I've been seriously considering switching from Sony to Microsoft as my main home console for this upcoming generation. This is particularly due to Xbox's backwards compatibility, my love for the Xbox 360, and anticipating that my friends will have the Series X come late 2020 or early 2021. What are your opinions of my dilemma? Do you foresee this being a common trend from PS4 owners? Is it too soon to really consider making the change, or am I simply losing my mind from being quarantined? Your opinions mean a lot to me, though I am unsure if you can talk me into sticking with Sony. Wishing you both the best. I feel like we need more information from Alacris because I'm... He gives us some detail as to why he might migrate, but it doesn't seem like any of the reasons have to do with something Sony did wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of confused by this. What do you think about his notion here that he wants to migrate away and um, immerse himself back into Xbox? I mean, this is this is what I was talking about. I, I think I don't know if this is going to be a common trend with people with like a lot of people, but there are definitely going to be some people who really do value backwards compatibility to the point where they will they are more than happy to jump a ship man it's 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 really cool to be able to play mass effect still on the same box that i'm going to play the new doom on and i think sony's mixed messaging on how they're going to roll out backwards compatibility and their inability to really get this shit together sooner i mean microsoft has been doing this for a couple years now like it's been a minute. It's been a mainstay of that system for a while. So I I wouldn't be surprised to see people shift for this reason alone, just to have a longer, uh, more reliable backlog, knowing that their investments will stay where they where they should on the platform that they choose to invest in. I would say that it is far too early for this. I think we have to wait until we've seen both of the boxes, until we know what the launch lineups are and what the games are going to be that are coming. Because there, I don't know, there could be a chance that Xbox comes out with something crazy. But until then, I think you'd want to remain where the games are, and you know that you're going to be getting God of War 2 or whatever, they, or God of War Eternal, <laughs> or whatever the hell they're going to call it. You know you're going to be getting Last of Us on PS4, and that's probably going to be, that's probably going to play better on PS5, I, I, would, I would hope. So yeah, I, I would just, I would wait a little bit. It's a bit too early to be considering 
honestly, either of these machines. You've you've got to wait until we have a, a far more concrete picture of what the next year or two is going to look like, in my opinion. That's my feeling as well, that it's just too soon. I mean, he, he had said that. It's, is it too soon to even start making the decision? I don't know that you have all the information you need yet. I don't begrudge you yeah. bailing out. I mean, do what you got to do. It's your money. It's your time. doesn't matter to me. But yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I think it's just it's too soon to make that decision. We don't have enough information about everything yet. And you might not want to lock yourself into a decision, at least mentally, that you might back out on. This is a decision you can literally make the day before the consoles come out. You don't have to make this decision right now. So I would wait for more information. But if that's the jump you want to make, that's the jump you want to make. And we wish you the very best with it. Ben Sharma wrote into us on Patreon and says, hey, conservative Colin and compassionate Chris. Given that we've all become shut ins now, Colin's 12, 12 and 12 months JRPG quest looks easier than it once did. And given the interest in politics, history and all of that other stuff, I wanted to ask whether either of you have ever thought about jumping into the Trail series by Falcom. The initial trilogy were PSP games, Trails in the Sky, with the marvelous acronym TITS. The unlocalized <laughs> middle duology can best be enjoyed on Vita, hacked with fan translations for the evolution ports. And the final tetralogy is playable or will be playable on PS4. It's a world that one can truly sink into, and I wholeheartedly recommend it in these dark times. Stay safe and keep your stick on the ice. Thank you, Ben. This has been a series that has been long recommended to me, and I did play Trails of Cold Steel on vita just for a little while it's a game that I've, i actually redownloaded it because it's a game that i've been thinking about going back into but a lot of people do compare it to persona just in the sense of its depth and its kind of calendar structure and a lot of other things i don't know if that's ubiquitous between all of the games mm -hmm. but it's certainly something that i have considered doing is this a series that you have any interest in at all i i highly doubt it no <laughs> no. <laughs> no i i i can't man i my my, my Quota for JRPGs are very, very, it's a very slim quota. It's just my, not my ideal cup of tea. Uh, the fact that I'm looking forward to Final Fantasy VII Remake at all is actually kind of shocking because I really did like that demo quite a bit. Unusual for me. Yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like everyone can broach a genre that might not otherwise be for them just if the game is right. Right. And that seems to be like Final Fantasy VII Remake as, an, as the example. It seems to be a, a good example of that. I'm when it comes to Nihon Falcom as a publisher and developer, I'm much more into the Ease games, which they're also responsible for. But I am open to these Legend of Hero games as well. I mean, as he said, they've been going on Trails of Cold Steel, I think, came out in 2004. And the most recent one is Trail of Cold Steel 4, which I think, let me see here, I think came out already in the west but i could be wrong no it's only out in japan it's not even doesn't even have a western release date yep so i didn't even know that that was a series really like i, I knew that trail trails of cold steel was like a a thing but because they have numbers like trails of cold steel 4 i didn't think that like trails itself was a was a franchise yeah i guess the full franchise is the legend of heroes and then trails of cold steel is like a sub-series right. because then there are trails in the sky mm-hmm and then, like he said, these other ones, Zero no Kaseki and A no Kaseki, which I guess are only in Japan and never been translated. They're on PSP and Vita. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of the East games, though. And I actually the last East game I actually did play was Memories of Celsida. So I'm a little bit behind. They also did make that game, that role playing game, Tokyo Xanadu, which came to Vita and PS4 in 2017 and actually looks really, really good. It's an action RPG. I've always wanted to play as well, but I just never got to it. All right. Uh, let's see what's next. 
Oliver Gia wrote into us and said, Dear Computing Colin and Cloud Storage Chris, it's always interested me how Microsoft utilizes Blu-ray discs for their physical Xbox One games, but that optical technology is owned by Sony. Of course, Sony Interactive Entertainment, which is responsible for the PS4, operates separately from Sony's Blu-ray manufacturing. It begs the question, though, how much of a profit does Sony make from Microsoft having to use Blu-ray drives and discs for their Xbox One and upcoming Series X consoles? It's likely not a huge amount, but those royalties can't be paltry either. Would it cost Microsoft too much to utilize their own proprietary disc technology? I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts. Thanks and keep away from the corona. We will, Oliver. So I actually looked into this. This is a good question. I've actually wondered this in the past myself. Yeah. So there's a thing called the Blu-ray Disc Association that was uh, founded actually in 2002. It's a consortium of companies that are board members on the Blu-ray technology and the future of the platform and the creation and licensees and all that kind of stuff. And Sony is just one of those companies. There are a bunch of others, including like LG and Panasonic and Toshiba, and then some big manufacturers of film and and TV, like Walt Disney and Warner Brothers and Lionsgate. So I tried to find the amount of money that they make per drive sold on the license. And I did find a price of two to three dollars per console. But that's split, I think, between the consortium and they make obviously a a fraction of money on every Blu-ray made as well. So the best answer I have for you, Oliver, is that they make maybe pennies total in net income once all is said and done per Blu-ray drive sold. And that's a nice amount of money to put into their pocket. But they are one of the founders of the Blu-ray technology, along with Panasonic and others. But they're not the only stakeholder anymore. I think at one time they owned, as far as I could tell, 70% of the Blu-ray drive technology. And that's since been split down the middle many, many times. So I don't think it's the same as um, when VHS was founded. And what was the company, the Japanese company that made VHS? I'm going to look this up. I forgot. It's the one. It's like the acronym. J- not JVC. No, it is JVC. Is it really? They, oh, yeah, they, they founded VHS and they made a shit ton of money licensing uh, VCRs, but VCRs existed for more or for a longer period of time or much more ubiquitous, sold much better than Blu-ray drives. So I don't think the amount of money that they're making here is as, as substantial as JVC made back in the day. Thank you for your question. Eli Abukasim wrote into us and said, hello, Mocha Colin and Latte Chris. As you might have already heard, COVID-19 has shut down the majority of production of every Hollywood film studio. I work full time on one of the 50 plus film and TV productions affected here in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's crazy. It took a world pandemic to get me back into my backlog. My off topic question is, what TV shows have you been binging? I'm at the end of season 10 of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and it's really brightening my days in quarantine. Social distancing notwithstanding, keep tapping those asses. Thank you so much, (laughs) Eli. Appreciate that. This is totally off topic, but I was curious, Chris, if you're working your way through any television shows or anything in this pandemic. I mean, I did finish Castlevania pretty quickly. I started the latest, like the newest season of Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is great. I'm only up to like the third episode uh, and it's hysterical, which is great news because I I was really worried because I was like, oh, no, they're doing to bring it back again. But I think the the main show, like the show that I always put on now is just like I put on Always Sunny as just noise because I actually haven't seen all of that show. I had only recently started watching it, so I'm just kind of going through a bunch of the the seasons in random order, and I just sort of put it on in the background and pay attention to it every couple every couple minutes. It's a good show to just kind of have on. I lo- I, mean, I absolutely love Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Just one of the great 
great shows of all time. So I worked my way through this was really a little bit before the pandemic started, but I worked my way through The Last Kingdom on Netflix, which I really loved. And then so then I started watching Vikings, which is the same subject matter. Just it's it was by History Channel. Yeah. And I'm in I'm on the fourth season of that now. I watch a couple episodes every night. It's really good. It's kind of falling off a little bit now that I'm where I'm at. Uh, but it is interesting to see these two different shows that deal with very similar subject matter about the Dane Norsemen and the Northmen and their invasions of Wessex and other parts of what would become England and Paris and all these kinds of things. And it's really cool. It's good subject matter. But I think The Last Kingdom is a far superior show. And so but I recommend both of them uh, so far. I don't know what I'm going to get into next. It's been a great time for games, too. So I've just been playing a lot of games and yeah, catching up on my podcast backlog. I just listened to a Joe Rogan episode with Brian Green, who's like a famous physicist. It was so good. There are just so many good conversations out there to catch up on. And a game like Neo is great to just kind of put something on in the background and and listen and whatever. So, yeah, I've been catching up on all sorts of backlogs, not just television shows. Jace Tamulovich wrote in and said, Chris, I write to you with great concern. I recently watched a Ghost Recon Breakpoint trailer that ended with what I consider to be a very iconic Sam Fisher night vision goggle startup. And now all I can think is they're going to screw over Splinter Cell by making it part of this already weird Terminator crossover thing. Were we all wrong to have you will Splinter Cell into existence again? Is this what we get for tampering with forces we cannot possibly comprehend? <laughs> what do you think of this, Chris? Yeah, I did see this. Uh, it, it, it did bother me. They've got Sam Fisher investigating a Terminator on an island. I don't know what the hell they're doing. It's really dumb. But it shows me that at least they know that Splinter Cell has enough value to resurrect in some way, shape, or form, even if it's not necessarily in the Splinter Cell games. It, mean, it, it means they're thinking about it, which is always a good sign. You, you never want Sam Fisher to just be gone forever. Because then it just means that they just they don't they don't give a shit. Then it means that it's just completely dead to them. But the fact that they're using Sam Fisher as some way to get people on board to this game that is, as far as I know, isn't doing too well. It means they see some value in Splinter Cell and that character. They see enough value in that character to justify putting him in there and sort of using him as as a as a beacon to draw people in. Uh, it's not going to work. I will not pick up <laughs> Ghost Recon Breakpoint just because they put Michael Ironside in it. But I don't know. I don't know if I would be too distraught by this. I think it's, if anything, it's a it's a good sign, a frustrating sign, but a, a good one. I, I'm curious what what the future of Splinter Cell is. Yeah, I know that people really want it, but I'm more eager to see Ubisoft try a few different things now. They're too reliant on the Tom Clancy games in some way. I do love the Far Cry games, but I would just love to see them come out with a few. I know they're coming out with like Skull and Bones and whatever that is. And they did do For Honor and stuff, but it would be cool to see them really rev their engines and do some new and unique stuff. Finally, Chris Troy Yarborough wrote into us and said, hey, cuddly Colin and comfy Chris. As you know, last week it was reported that Sony may be interested in obtaining Konami IP. While I have my doubts of the validity of this report, we talked about this last week. It has me thinking, what would you want from a PS5 Castlevania game? Personally, I would love a new classic side-scroller Castlevania or Metroidvania in the vein of Symphony of the Night, but I'd be open to a third-person action game, as was reported. They could return old characters or perhaps fill in some of the Castlevania timeline gaps with the new Belmonts. At this point, I'm so starved for a Castlevania game, I'll take anything. What would you like from Castlevania PS5? I think that the reason that 
and you might disagree, Chris, but I think the reason why this is such a tantalizing possibility is just what Sony was able to produce alongside from software with Bloodborne, which a lot of people interpreted as a Castlevania game. And obviously that wasn't their intent, but it really does come off that way. And it really did kind of invigorate this idea in me of what could be in a 3D realm, because most 3D Castlevania games have not really been worth it going all the way back to I liked Castlevania 64. It was fine. Legacy of Darkness. These were fine games, but they never really fully realized their potential. Even Lords of Shadow, which I think was probably the best attempt, was not anywhere near as good as most of the side scrollers. But I think that they can do it. I don't think that there's something inherent about Castlevania that means it must be in 2D and it must be now a Metroidvania or anything like that. I think that they can do something really special. And I think that's why it was so tantalizing was because we know that they that Sony is able to produce a game like Bloodborne, which has all of the trappings and aesthetic of good Castlevania, because I love the Belmonts and all of the ancillary characters and all the bosses and Dracula and Alucard. I mean, these are amazing characters, but Castlevania is really about its setting and realizing that in the beauty that's possible on PS5 would just be absolutely astounding. But what what do you think? What would you want from it? Yeah, no, I would agree. I think I would want to see like a really, a really solid attempt at a 3D Castlevania game, especially after just watching the show and seeing how these fights can look. Like a lot of those fights that you see in that anime aren't, they, they don't seem implausible to make in 3D. In fact, they seem ideal to make in 3D. Like I would love to use the Morning Star Whip the way that Trevor uses it in that show. Just give me a system like that. Some crazy whip mechanics would be awesome. Uh, I think I would, I, I would, I would love that. I think, um, I think that's pretty much what's necessary if they're going to make a new Castlevania. I, I don't know if I would want a new Castlevania game if it's just going to be like a retread of Simon's Quest or Symphony of the Night, or they're just going to make me a a Morris where I <laughs> where it just hurts to use the whip. I don't know if I want any of that. Yeah, I think for me. I agree with you. Like, it was cool to see Symphony of the Night and Rondo of Blood re-released on PS4. And I would like Konami or someone to go back and make another 2D Castlevania game, whether in the Metroidvania style or something linear. But the future of Castlevania as a brand must come in a 3D AAA game. And they have the initiative right now with the anime being so popular. They This is the time to enter, re-enter with something new and something exciting and something, I think, Japanese which is a different look than what we got with the Lords of Shadow games, which were made in Spain and just didn't have the same feel that I think Castlevania does. Castlevania is a very glitzy, campy Japanese series, and it needs to retain that for it to work. That's what makes it so beautiful and so interesting. So, yeah, I am hoping against hope that we get more Castlevania. I just I'm really dubious of this rumor about Sony purchasing or acquiring the Konami licenses, I, I think that it's more likely that they or the IP, I think it's more likely that they get a license to make these games. I think that's possible. And Castlevania is something that I think needs some love. Castlevania hasn't gotten a lot of love in a long time, and it hasn't gotten a really great game in more than a decade. So I'd love to see that happen. And a 3D Castlevania game on PS5 would be something special, especially if Sony was able to farm that out to a trusted studio, especially if someone like From Software could actually make that. I think that'll be really fun. Yeah. All right, Chris, that's all we have for this episode of Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast. I hope everyone out there enjoyed it. 
Remember to support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins last stand for early ad free access to every episode of the show. Access to Sacred Symbols Plus, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts and ideas and much more. Uh, keep an eye out for a Let's Play. It'll be live either right after this goes live or you'll it'll already be live depending on when you're listening to this. But Chris is putting up a Let's Play on the SideQuest channel for Doom Eternal. So I'm really excited to see that. We'll put that out there this week for you so you can see what the game's all about. And remember, please do buy our game, Twin Breaker, a Sacred Symbols adventure on PS4 and Vita cross buy. So you get both versions, two platinum trophies. We really want to hear what you think about it. I'm really proud of it. Barry's really proud of it. And we're super stoked to get it out into the wild and see what everyone thinks. Uh, Chris, do you have any closing comments before we get out of here? Uh, no, I'm going to play more Doom Eternal. <laughs> cool. Sounds great. <laughs> I'm excited. All right. Sounds good. Thank you, everyone out there for your support. Stay safe and be well. We'll talk to you next time. Goodbye. Take care, guys. Sacred Symbols, a PlayStation podcast, is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Richmond, Virginia and Burbank, California, USA. This show is conceived by, is written by, and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Chris Raygun. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Chris is on Twitter at Chris R. Gunn and on Instagram at Chris underscore Ray underscore Gunn. Sacred Symbols is edited by Dustin Furman. To message the show online, please use Patreon's DM service. As you know, all of Colin's Last Stand shows, including Sacred Symbols, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Chris Adams, Carlos Algaret, Morgan Ashley, Saul Balcazar, Taylor Barkley, Martin Beck, Tyler Bello, Mark Boggio, Barrett Boswell, Spencer Brand, Lennon Brixie, Josh Bushing, Austin Bullock, Dylan Burns, Chris Buston, Alex Cabrera, Bjorn Campbell, Patrick Carper, William O'Carroll, Brian Chand, Sean Chandler, David Chestnut, Carter Childs, Rodney Coleman, Simon Conception, Brad Cooley, John Cordero, Gio Corsi, Philip Crone, Daniel Diamore, Colin Davenport, Knight Draft, David Ellis, Jerome Ferreira, Joe Finelli, Eric Finkenbeiner, Jordan Gale, Chris Galvin, Darren Gardner, Connor Gashian, Alex Gates, Michael Gates, Tyler Goodwin, Josh Gravelick, Miranda Grubba, Jonathan H., Eric Harden, Tyler Harris, Richard Hebert III, Kyle Hagel, Wyatt Henry, Robbie Hensley, Scott Hernandez, Blake Israel, Azan Isa Al Ricey, Josh Yeager, Joshua Jonathan, Paul Joyce, Greg Julefs, and K. Patrick Kelly, Jeremy Key, Antti Kinnanen, James Kinslow III, Ryan R. Kittredge, Bo Clant, Mason Cadillac, Jackson Lastiqua, Don Q. Lee, Jeffrey Leonard, Patrick Leslie, Keith A. Lewis, Chad Lewis, Lou and Ray Loper, Colin Love, Scott Lovelace, Josh M., Kiet Mai, Ryan T. Mandel, Daniel Margaka, Ross Maranka, Matt Martin, Sean Mason, John McCarthy, Josh McKinney, Joe McPartland, Raul Melendez, Alex Moans, Chris Moore, Betty Ann Moriarty, Ryan Murdoch, Stephen Nieder, Adam Nix, Donnie Nolan, Dan Nolan, George A. Nunez, Jesse Owen, Jorge Palomino, Andrew Parker, Zach Parsley, Daniel Parsons, Todd Paxton, Marius S. Peterson, Gerald Pennington, Matthew Perdue, Enrique Perez, Jason Pettit, Travis Plymel, Jeff Pollard, Lawrence F. Prokop, Nathan R., Ryan Reeves, Peter Reynolds, Shane Rayum, Jonathan Rice, Petro Rose, A.G. Rowe, Jose Salinas, John Schultz, Michael Shanholtz, Toby Schutman, Gregory Slavinsky, Joshua Smallwood, Ahmad Tamar, Ben Thompson, Carl Tolman, Alan Tremblay, Daniel Vale, Michael Vecchio, Oakley Waldron, Justin Wagaman, Isaac Wastman, Damon Weathers, Mike Wayant, David Wright, Corey Wyatt, Tony Zuniga, Casual Misfits Gaming, Homeworld Hub, Vexius, Throw7, McDog18, Infinite, Boots, Organic Produce, Madmock Media, Bloody Fang, Mubarak, Richter86, Hugo's Desk, Of Fortuna, Andrew, Ian, Gamerfilmaholic, Megadet, and Rainick. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, 
Whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.